Steve and Kevin review War of the Spark for Vintage on episode 89 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 89 of So Many Insane Plays, our War of the Spark review show. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hello, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. So we have some fun announcements to talk about this episode, and the big one here is VSL finals are complete. Season 9 is in the books. That's right. Congratulations to our winner, Andreas Peterson. He defeated Rachel Agnes in the finals, and it was a fun and interesting finals to watch, filled with interesting plays and interesting decisions. Steve, what, what's, your, what's your major takeaway here? Well, what I loved about the finals is it pit two very different players with very different and kind of clearly definable approaches. Mm-hmm. To, to the you know there are a lot of different personalities and types in in the uh, in the VSL. I mean that's what makes it so great. But among the tier of players who are like very competitive, these were two polar archetypes. I won't say I don't polar my my might not be exactly the right word because it's not on a single dimension. But <laughs> but what I loved is on the one hand Great. you have Rachel, who is a very proficient, extremely intuitive and powerful player. I hope this isn't um, in any way uh, undermining how much I respect her as a player, but I think she's basically a magic savant, and specifically <laughs> like a blue mage savant. Like That's why I think she's so great as an old school player and a vintage player. Because in those formats, she can just she just knows what to do. You know, like we know people mm-hmm. like that, Kevin. You know, they just yes, we do. They just intuitively know what the right play is. Um, for whatever reason, maybe it's a mixture of intuition as well as pattern recognition. But like Rachel is like the epitome of that kind of player. She's a paragon of intuitive power. Like she plays very powerful blue decks, the best cards, and she plays them basically flawlessly from an intuitive perspective, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have Andreas, who I call like the most amb- ambidextrous player. Specifically by that, I mean like he is a player who has an enormous range. He always plays the best decks. So he mm-hmm. plays tier one and upper tier decks, and he plays them like at a, at a technical level of proficiency that's not clearly like there's a lot of baked in intuition and, and um, uh, pat- pattern recognition, but it's much more he's playing uh, a, 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 like a forethought, right? He's evaluating everything, whereas Rachel's just like this powerful, intuitive player. Um, <laughs> And so, so she's very facile and like intuits the correct play swiftly. Whereas he's a player who is extremely like he's basically a pro level technical player. And I think she probably is in the same regard, but I mean, this as well, but, but she's doing it like at an intuitive level where she's just like taking her most powerful weapons and putting them into max overdrive. Whereas he is like a, very thoughtfully considering like which weapon to bring and like, vi- and like working on very perilous axes you know, to try and position himself. And so in that regard, you've got like this very fun, intuitive player against this really powerful technical player who's really ambidextrous, 
right? So you've got like the Swiss Army knife versus like the F1 racer, <laughs> right? And that's like such a wonderful thing to see line up. And actually, that's exactly what lined up, right? Like, yeah, I was really wondering. I, their deck selection really belies that. Unpack that for us. So Rachel, recognizing her own strengths, brought three strong blue decks. Three decks that figure strongly in her strength and intuition, as you put it. And she really didn't deviate from that. Right. She brought <laughs> Blue-White Mentor, which is a list she had been working on for some time. She brought Blue-Red Pyromancer, which she had already won with in the VSL Finals and, and was more or less unchanged from that time. And she brought a bug list, a Leovold bug list, which she specifically designed for certain blue matchups. And she really just felt like she could win with this selection of decks. Right. And she just wanted to have uh, some amount of flexibility in choosing her blue deck. matchup. Yeah. yeah. She basically brought three blue decks with different color configurations. Yeah. Um, that's exactly right. Um, and so on some level, what's interesting about that is that it's actually a test not of Rachel versus Andreas, but of the format itself. Meaning that it's if you know if you know a player is going to bring three extremely powerful blue decks, does the format have enough leeway, enough wiggle room, enough give in its various niches and corners to allow a player to combat a player who's just overdrive in blue? And and so on the one hand, that, that's why this finals was so amazing. The finals was a test of multiple levels. It was a test of, you know, a, a, an ambidextrous player versus an intu- you know, a technical player versus a, an intuitive, very powerful and fun player who is, you know, I don't want, I'm not underselling Rachel. She's extremely technically proficient. <laughs> um, it was, and then a higher level up, it was a, it was, can a player metagame in a certain way, right? Can, can a, can a non, can a player beat three blue decks, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then at a level above that, it was, can vintage can non blue decks beat blue decks in vintage right not just a player but can can these players as representatives of format position pull positions can they do that and and i yeah. i think the the answers are maybe cross cutting in, in uh, 2 weeks before i predicted i thought andreas would win beat rachel i think rachel though proved that she could beat a player of the andreas type right i mean she beat rich <laughs> so the <laughs> The intuitive, powerful player can beat you know, the player who, who has a kind of broader range yep. um, and deep understanding of the format. But I, I said this to you, I think I said this to you, I certainly said this to, had thought this, um, I think Andreas was the, the superior vintage player like in the entire tournament. And I thought that the, through the entire season, um, partly because he, so, so someone had created a website, uh, a, a program rather, that called the Magic Online results, the website results, and mm-hmm. Andreas had over the last year a 52 win percent win percentage on Magic Online, which is like not even in the top tier of like me and Montolio and Brian Kelly and like who are all above 60 percent on Rich mm-hmm. Shea. We were all like between like 60 and 65 percent. Uh, um, but Andreas, in my mind has the biggest the by far the biggest range and was willing to take risks that other players weren't willing to take. And he took those risks on the VSL and he took those risks in Magic Online play, both leagues and um challenges, and those risks allowed him to dive into corners of the format that other players didn't. Now, the only player I think that took risks of the level that he did was Brian Kelly. <laughs> but Brian Kelly takes a different kind of risk. 
it's not yeah. a risk that he perceives to be his risks, right? It's like it's just Brian <laughs> Kelly's counterintuitive <laughs> decisions, right? Conclusions, right, right. Whereas Andreas, his win percentage doesn't reflect, I think, his mastery of the format because he was taking risks to try innovative things. And so, for the last, really, the last six, maybe I think actually since the team season, team VSL season, I've really observed Andreas as being out there is. I think the the leading edge is kind of the tip of the sphere of, of vintage format, the vintage format. And I kind of quietly have felt that he's just the best player in the format right now. Like he just have both has the most consistent results, the most what I call ambidextrous, you know, player, meaning like range, but it also means more than that. It's more than just like deck range. It also means kind of like facility with deck range. And I don't just mean depth. I mean like ability to move into niches that don't really exist. You know, <laughs> kind of what Brian Kelly does, but on a on a bigger scale, on a more macro level. Um, and then to that, he brings like a pro level proficiency of technical play. That, that all those things are basically combined, unmatched in vintage. Like you, you can take like if you were to diagram, you know, the format, and it doesn't matter how you want to diagram it on three dimensions, on four dimensions. I'm thinking of those like top topographical maps. Kevin, you know, like those uh, right. maps you can see. Like, you could put, like, Montolio, and, like, he's, like, the master of shops. And then he does some other things really well. Like, he does Dredge very well, and he can play Oath, you know, and so on. And I'm sure he can play other parts of the format well. But, like, there's no one's map that is just, like, like, Andreas's map is like a web. <laughs> you know, it's just like a spider web that goes over the whole topography of vintage. <laughs> you know, right, right. Instead of having like poles, it's just all encompassing. So, very well deserved. Well, and to one of your points, he definitely chose decks that positioned him very well against Rachel. He had yes. two Cavern of Soul decks with no one drops, right? Yes. To maximally punish her for her deck construction, basically. And it, it panned out for him, right? He won, ended up winning two of the three times they played with one of his cavern decks against one of her blue decks and that was very decisive it, but it's more than it's more than the fact he played a cavern deck against a blue deck like i played a cavern deck against rachel and i went one for one in one of the <laughs> prelims it's that he played an exceptionally well tuned cavern deck and he played them both exceptionally well yep that's the thing is like you can you can position yourself to try and beat blue decks but you usually fail you have to be two <laughs> levels up from that. <laughs> I see your point. And yes, he absolutely demonstrated the technical skill that was required. And the metagaming. Like, he tuned them well. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, the replays of the VSL finals are there. And you can hear yours truly commentating with Randy for the whole thing, which was a great, fun time. And so, what happened on the night, for those who weren't able to watch, was basically, they Andreas won 3-1. to one. The first match was Rachel's bug deck against his white Eldrazi, which Rachel won. And that was very interesting. And then match two, his four slash five, I guess it was four color humans, against her blue-white control, which Andreas won. Match three was her blue-red pyromancer against his Sylvan outcome deck, which, was, which had some just incredible back and forth in it, which Andreas ultimately won. And then match five was a replay of match one. Their decks were, both players had the choice of which deck to bring for match five out of any of their three, and they, I guess, maybe intentionally or not, rechose match one, which was the one that Rachel had won, but this time Andreas took it out. So he won the last three matches of the night to win the final. Yeah. There were some awesome plays, some really interesting decisions, 
some tricks here and there, some really good reads, some interesting, difficult opening hands. I mean, it had just a little bit of everything that's great in the format. Yeah, there were. It, you have to watch it to appreciate it, but there were so many decision points that mm-hmm. were interesting, where players went one way or the other. No, no player got away without on a, had an error-free evening. Uh, but there were some certainly some savvy decisions that were made by both players. Absolutely. So Randy did announce, and this is not necessarily as relevant to our audience, but the next Super League would be a team modern Super League. Likely, he's not planning. guaranteed, but not guaranteed. Yes, but a- as of his, you know, as of the recording of his uh, final show, he said that was what he was planning. So be on the lookout for that. Any other announcement type stuff? Uh, we're recording before NoobCon in the Wizards tournament in Europe. But just as an announcement, I will be heading to NoobCon um, in just a few, in a week. Um, and so I'm excited to do a report when we get back and talk about that. That's going to be a lot of fun. So our next episode will almost certainly feature, perhaps as its only content, I really don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> um, a major portion of your experience at NoobCon in old school and Alpha 40 and, and all the other festivities there. Definitely. Awesome. I do have an upcoming tournament in Grand Rapids. We're now monthly at the Gaming Warehouse in Grandville on the fourth Sunday of every month, which makes the next proxy event there Sunday, May 26th. We're having trouble building our following at this shop in the Grand Rapids area. We've got a couple of diehards, but we're not garnering many new folks. So I'm hoping that any of you who can hear me and are in the West Michigan area, come play at the Gaming Warehouse. Full proxy, Sunday at noon, every fourth Sunday. The next one is May 26th. I've got a a tournament. Um, I will actually be... I'm not sure whether I'll be in town or not, Um, but I think it's May 19th, Sunday, May 19th at Eudaimonia is another vintage tournament. Um, Yes, so if you're in town, come and play vintage in Berkeley, California. Awesome. Now, it's a little topical. Doesn't Matt Sperling play at your shop sometimes? Uh, He does come up. uh, I don't know. I think he's he's been there at least a number of times. Yes. Okay, well... Maybe you could play against uh, recent Mythic Championship runner-up Matt Sperling at this particular event. That'd be cool. It's 15 proxies, too, so it's awesome. Awesome. Well, it wouldn't be a set review without our report card, so let's hear how we did on Ravnica Allegiance. With Ravnica Allegiance, we predicted play for only two cards, Lavinia, Azorius Renegade, and Sphinx of Foresight. And for the likes of Terramander, Electrodominance, Light Up the Stage, Cinder Vines, Emergency Powers, Dovin Grand Arbiter, and Kaya, Orzov, Usurper, we predicted zero, and there was in fact zero. <laughs> so I want to save the best for last here. Let's talk about next Sphinx of Foresight. Steve, you predicted four. I predicted six. The actual was zero. So. I guess technically that goes down as a win for you, Steve, but really, you and I were really torn on how to predict Sphinx well, of Foresight. Well, I actually 5-0'd a league. I won a trophy in a, in a vintage league with it, um, with nice. two or three of them, and it was very good. In Dredge? In Dredge. It was very good. Um, yeah. I didn't get a lot of opportunity this year to play in too many leagues, but um, it was fantastic when I did play it, and I played it right when it came out, and it was just did everything you wanted it to do, so... <laughs> Well, hey, next time, uh, go win the challenge with yeah. it. Right? <laughs> and Cindervine, the real I think headliner. Cindervine also appeared in 5-0 in leagues, if I'm not mistaken. I, mean, I saw Matt Murray yeah, playing I, a lot with it, but I don't know how much, in any case. 
Yes, absolutely. Matt Murray did did five zero a league with Cinder Vines and with Dovin and with Kaya. God. I mean, Jesus. I mean, Matt is good for testing out those new cards and having success with them in league. Nice. But the headliner here, of course, is Lavinia, Azorius Renegade. Steve, you predicted 18. I predicted 20. The actual was 26. Phenomenal. We were both in range. Yeah, so I mean, we are in striking distance. Absolutely. We definitely got this uh, this result pretty close to on target. And the, the use cases were interesting. I actually did a little bit of a breakdown. So of the 26 appearances, seven of them were in the main deck only. Nine of them were in the sideboard only. And nine of them were main and side which I thought was really interesting. We didn't yeah. get into that level of detail no. in our prediction, but it definitely belies her our omni use or omni utility. So if we counted sideboard onlys, that's exactly 18, which is what I predicted. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so Lavinia was primarily played in outcome, but there was a little bit of splash play in Xerox and some hate bears and survival as that's well. That's fascinating. Primarily it became by the end of by the, you know, by approaching today, she's primarily a tool in outcome though. Wow. That's so fascinating. Yeah, And as we're going to discuss later in the show, she has some interesting comparisons in this War of the Spark set. So overall, pretty good predictions for us. I mean, really only two cards that we predicted, but the the headliner here, we got very close to right on Lavinia. And she's obviously a staple of the format going forward. Cool. So let's move on and talk about War of the Spark. One thing we like to do for new sets is talk about what mechanics they might be introducing, and War of the Spark has a few. The Planeswalker emphasis in the set is obviously not new, but they've done some new things mechanically with them, and that is primarily around static abilities. Every Planeswalker in the set has a static ability in addition to its loyalty abilities. In some cases, that means the Planeswalkers, in the case of the Uncommons, for example, only have a single loyalty ability going down. And so that's not mechanically new conceptually, but it's a new thing that we'll talk about a number of the cards we review. There is one fully new mechanic, and that is a mass. A mass comes with a number, a mass one, two, three, etc. And it says, put two plus one plus one counters, in the case of a mass two, on an army you control. If you don't control one, create a zero zero black zombie army creature token first. So the idea here is that you amass, if you don't have a zombie army, then you make one and put the counters on it. It's like a germ that gets the counters. If you already have one, though, the amass ability simply grows the existing army by whatever the amount is for X. So that's a mass. And we can move on then to our set review. We're not going to be reviewing any amass cards specifically. None of them are good enough on their own, even though there are some interesting effects in the set. None of the amass cards, like so many mechanics that we review on this show, are actually good enough for vintage. So let's get started. Let's talk about Bolas's Citadel. This card is insane. So, (laughs) (laughs) for three black, 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 legendary artifact, you may look at the top card of your library anytime. You may play the top card of your library. If you cast a spell this way, pay life equal to its converted mana cost rather than pay its mana cost. And as if that all wasn't enough, tap, sacrifice 10 non-land permanents, each opponent loses 10 light. Yeah. So this, this card is awesome. It's a legendary artifact as well. So yeah. this is a black artifact 
which there aren't that many that see play in vintage. There's the um, the capsule that saw play for a little bit. There was a um, also Nihil Spellbomb. Is that actually black or is it an artifact? No, no. it is not. Yeah, <laughs> just as a black mana activation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, the the one thing I just want to point out on the templating is that there are technically four different abilities here, mm-hmm. but the the middle two are intimately conjoined, and the first three are kind of some generally conjoined <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in the sense that like the second the third ability is conditioned on the fir- on the second <laughs> but yep. explicitly but implicitly the second and third depend on the first so yep. <laughs> <laughs> so i think we should we should unpack and we'll, that we'll talk about it but also we would probably be talking about this card even if it didn't have the fourth ability <laughs> that's right the fourth ability is like zero zero point one percent of the relevance of this card. It's not yes. irrel it's not completely irrelevant, but it yeah. has almost no significance. <laughs> almost none. I'm not gonna say it's insignificant, Agreed. but it has almost none. Um yep. I, 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 there's a lot to say. I don't want to talk about applications just yet. I don't want to talk about deck shells. I want to talk about the interweaving of this template for a moment. Okay. Sure. So let's set let's bracket the mana cost, let's bracket the comparison to Yogmoss Bargain, um, and let's bracket all that stuff. So mm-hmm. the the interweaving is first of all you get to look at the top card. So it has Field of Dreams on it, but it's asymmetrical, which means you get to look at your top. It's not revealed. It's yep. you get to look. So it's like Sensei's divining top in that regard. But it's it's got the Field of Dreams thing built in. Now the difference between that and Future Side is that Future Side I think it's re- it's revealed, right? It's always revealed. This is closer to Experimental Frenzy. There you go. Mm-hmm. So then the second is you may play the top of it. That is actually where you get Experimental Frenzy, right? Yep, those first two parts are exactly experimental frenzy. Right. Um, okay, so then you go to the third statement, and this is where things deviate. Um, experimental frenzy does not have any clause that allows you to to um, cheat the cards that you're <laughs> from the top of your library. Right. Not at all. Um, and neither now, Matt, uh, future sight. Future Sight is literally just the first two abilities exactly. on Belaz's exactly. Citadel. It's, yeah. it, Future Sight is five mana, but it's just the first two abilities. <laughs> yep. And it's also, by the way, deep into blue, and this is deep into, into black, which is obviously easier right. to cast. But let's bracket that for the moment. So now let's focus on the third ability. If you can cast a spell this way, pay life equal to the converted mana cost rather than pay, as mana co- pay its mana cost, which mm-hmm. means that um, if you had mana available... You can play it either from the top of your library via the second clause or the the third. Is that am I reading that correctly? Or must you no. play it through the third? You must play. And it you must the, play it from the third. third. Okay, got it. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a trick. It's a little bit of a drawback. You must <laughs> play it through the third. Um, which it's, me- yeah, it's a drawback for for most normal magic cards and well, formats. But well, we can get around that drawback. But let's just say, for example, like suppose you um draw like the the first card you flip is Dark Ritual. You pay one life, you play the Dark Ritual. And the next card you draw is Duress. Like, you yep. you might want to be able to cast the Duress with the three black you have floating. <laughs> That's right. Instead, Absolutely. you're compelled to go down another point of life to play it that way. That's my point. Agreed. That's what I'm trying yeah. to get at. It makes all your spells cost Phyrexian mana, but you can't pay the mana part. <laughs> just the, yes. just the two life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> kind of. Now, that doesn't mean there's no workaround for that, right? right. Like, you could destroy this artifact to get around that. Mm-hmm. You could use Sensei's Divining Top to shift the order and then draw the card with Sensei's mm-hmm. Divining Top. Or any other cantrip. Or any other cantrip, right, to get to that. So there are workarounds, but it's not, it's not as straightforward, right? As, yes. 
Um, so, so basically what this means is that an ad nauseum type deck, type deck, it's functionally like that, right? It's like ad nauseum, you, like basically what happens is you flip a land, you flip a mox, you flip a ritual, you flip a discard spell, you flip a pact of negation, you keep, you keep playing those. The difference with ad nauseum though is that you're, you're cycling through the cards without having to cast them. So, yeah. so you put the card into your hand with ad nauseum, paying the mana cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like front end paying it, whereas here you're paying it on the back end, meaning that you you get it on the stack immediately. Yep. Now that has advantages and disadvantages. I think we have to go through those. You know, mm-hmm. the obvious disadvantage is that you don't want to play Pact of Negation immediately because there has to be a spell <laughs> on the stack, right? <laughs> right. So, um, and you might and not the other want, one is land. Yeah, land, and you might also not want to play. Well, well, so you're ba- you basically can't play a land if you hit a land, right? Uh, no, you can because the second. Uh, Ability says you may play the top card of your library, which just includes it. land. That's why it says if, if you, you have cast a second a spell, land, you're stuck. <laughs> yes, unless you can get it out of there some other way. Yeah. Um. So, but but there's an example of like tendrils, right? Like like if if tendrils yeah. is the second card, you have to play a mini tendrils that you really didn't want to play there. So yeah, that so not being able to control the sequence makes it not ideal for many storm-based kills and a couple of other different kinds of kills in Vintage because sequencing is important. Yes. Like, you don't want to be compelled to play a draw seven prematurely or Yogmas will prematurely. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's really awkward. <laughs> um, so those, that, that's, those are the drawbacks. Um, the advantage is that you, you get to... You don't even have to worry about the transfer from library to hand to stack. It just shortcuts the hand <laughs> altogether, right? It just puts it directly yep. onto the stack. I think that's an advantage in most, well, in, in, in some cases. Yeah, except for the I ones would, we were just I would talking say about. Yeah. It is undeniably more powerful. Yes. But advantage is a tricky word, yes. right? I mean, advantage implies a lot of things. And I would say when it comes to the construction of typical combo decks in vintage, it may not be an advantage vis a vis, as you said, pack negation, duress, fluster storm, that kind of thing, and tendrils itself. Right. So it's hard to unpack the word advantage yes, in that context. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know what's <laughs> it is certainly more powerful to to sidestep the right. hand and go straight that's to what the stack. I mean, is that it's normally that's more powerful because it short circuits a zone. Uh, yes. And, and it takes usually resources to. Sh- we, one of the things we've talked about in the show is that the key to magic is zone shifting. <laughs> it really is. Like that's that's really the key is that you have to use resources, life, mana to shift things from zones. Whether it's library yep. to graveyard, library to hand, uh hand to stack, uh battlefield to graveyard, you know, so on and right. so forth. Those zone shifts cost resources. In a sense that's really what magic is about. The main zone shift that you really want to achieve over time is library to hand. Like that's the most powerful one. The second most powerful one is library to uh battlefield or stack. <laughs> Right. I, Bat- I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I agree with your ordering there. I would argue that the primary, the, the primary method of most games of Magic, the primary zone shift is hand to battlefield. Yes. Or hand. To, actually, it's hand to stack, and then yes. a subset of that is stack to battlefield. But what I'm saying is that that most games of Magic are not won by moving hand to to battlefield. What they're won because you win library to you win library to hand. <laughs> and therefore can overwhelm your opponent's hand to stack. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Spoken like a true control player. So <laughs> I think in a lot of cases that is true. I would think, I think 
we don't need to argue this. You might be discounting how many, just how many games of limited are played where no extra cards are drawn. And it's okay. just a whole bunch of, yeah. it's a whole bunch, just a whole bunch of hand to battlefield, you know, or, or yeah. stack to battlefield. Anyway, I'm talking about vintage the po- in the vintage context. Yeah. Point of, yes, in, in vintage and in, in several other formats and in certain niche matchups in any format, outdrawing your opponent is key to victory. Absolutely. Now, the obvious exception is dredge, which, which is overwhelms generating card advantage by moving library to graveyard and then graveyard yeah, and, then, and, then and then graveyard, graveyard to, to battlefield. battlefield exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i would also point out too that um so, so what the power that you're talking about is the power to go straight from library to battlefield basically or to yes stack. it goes through this yeah it goes through the stack to do it of course well a lot of the things uh, are never going to go to the battlefield uh, that's We're true a lot of things don't manifest as battlefield tendrils duresses yeah that's a good point that's a good point but this is kind of an unheard of thing to have this kind of transfer of resources yes. from zone to zone That's what I'm trying based to get on at. anything other than mana. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and this it, kind of wholesale transfer, I, mean, I should that's, say. That's why this isn't Phyrexian mana, because it goes, it goes, in a sense, you're going library to stack in a way that normally that's from hand, you know? So it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very, it's very unusual. It's very novel in that regard. This is a, we've alluded to this, this, this concept of how to measure and evaluate magic cards and interactions by zone changes before. Yes. We've never really dug into it in any kind of formalized way, but I would encourage our audience to consider the fact, consider certain interactions, certain powerful cards and evaluate them purely on zone changes as a resource. And I think you'll find that many of the cards that we view as the most powerful in vintage and across magic have to do with how many zone changes they generate and for what cost. Yes. Like, like demonic consultation. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Interesting example. D- D- Doomsday is, is like the paradigmatic example, of course. Yeah. Doomsday is, is, is at the peak of that. Yeah. Um, Anywho. Yes. No, this is, this is so, this card is just on its face, immensely powerful, <laughs> immensely powerful. Um, the obvious point of comparisons are Yagmas Bargain, uh, Experimental Frenzy, and uh, Ad Nauseam. And it's kind of like hybrid elements of all, uh, but also right. Future Sight, because it directly takes the first two clauses out of Future Sight and then builds on them. So let's turn, if we can, there's so many different facets of this card we could focus on. Let's turn to the mana cost, Captain. <laughs> okay? Yes, important. Very so. So three black, black, black. Um, Black, black, black is not that difficult to reach in vintage for one very very simple reason yep there happens to be a subclass of cards called dark rituals <laughs> cabal rituals yep. and don't forget the ubiquitous black lotus black lotus for sure but i mean you know if this if this cost kevin red 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 three or blue 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 three or white 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 three or <laughs> green 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 three it would be much harder to cast than than black 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 three Undoubtedly. Like black, black 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 three is by far the easiest <laughs> of the intensive mana to, to generate. I mean, there are already a lot of restricted cards in Vintage that do that, or near-restricted cards, or formerly restricted cards, including, <laughs> but not limited to, <laughs> Necropotence, Doomsday, um, and Dark Petition, right? which has black-black. And, and of course, Yagmas Bargain is black-black. And um, with, as long as we're talking about mana cost, I think we must address Tinker. Well, that's the artifact component of it. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, this card can be tinkered into play, which is absurd. It's just absurd. <laughs> I think what that means, and and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I think it basically means that any combo deck that's running Tinker for Memory Jar probably just automatically includes this, as long as it has Dark Rituals. Interesting. So what do you make, though? I mean, 
it's castable. I agree with you in that base context. But what do you make of the the sequencing challenges that we had alluded to earlier? I mean, do, do you have to adjust the construction of your deck to facilitate this card? So, so think about this. I'm going to answer the question in a little bit of an indirect way. Suppose that you are playing like a burning tendrils type deck, okay. and you tinker this into play, and you know, like. Obviously, that's three minutes. You you could you could get memory jar, or you could get this, and you decide to get this, okay? Or if you're playing a dark petition storm deck, same thing, either deck, right? Yep. Let's say you put a land into play, you put a couple of mocks in into play, you play a duress, um, you maybe play a, a, a like a burning wish or something like that, um, and then you you get to a point where you see a draw seven, or or any spell that you wouldn't want to play right now. Like, right? It could be a draw seven. Um, it could be a Yogmoss will that would be premature. Mm-hmm. It could be... I'm trying to think of another... <laughs> Gristle, well, Gristlebrand, you might just want to play anyway. <laughs> just to get it on the stack. But yes, any one of those... Let's say like, like you're at nine life and you don't want to play Gristlebrand because yeah. you don't want to be at one or sub, sub you know, in bolt rain. Yeah. Um, if you've gotten a lot of card advantage out of it, is it really that much worse than bargain right there? Right? I mean, it's kind of like there are a lot of times where you'll pass, there are a lot of pass the turn bargain hands, a lot, you know, there just are. Mm-hmm. So if you had the chance, like, let's say, Kevin, you're on, let me make this even more specific. Suppose you go turn one, mox, mox, land, tinker, and you could tinker this into play, or you could tinker jar into play. Which would you get? I would probably get this. Me too. Yeah. That's what, because number one, you're going to get some advantage off it immediately. Very likely, right? Very likely. Very likely. Whereas Jar, you have to wait a complete turn. They could destroy it, and then you have to decide, you know, do I use it or not? Even if they destroy this, you're going to get value out of it. Almost certain. Uh, Yeah, so I would get this. And then if you hit a wall, fine, you hit a wall. You know? The next turn, you just keep going with it. If I'm understanding your position here, it sounds like you would just jam this into an existing Burning Tendrils shell. Yes. Okay. And or a DPS shell as a one of. Yeah. With Tinker. Absolutely. Do you think this makes, I mean, I know I'm, I'm pushing toward archetype, you know, deck construction now, but does this make those decks significantly better? Or do you think it's a minor I- uptick? I think it's a minor uptick. I don't think you can play more than like two of these. Yeah. I think for the same reason we've seen the DPS decks go down to one bargain, even though it's unrestricted, you just can't, you can't, first of all, you don't want to hit another one of these when you have it. <laughs> yep. Right? It's legendary, so yep. it doesn't give you any additional value. Um, I guess you could like play a second one and sacrifice, you know, kill your opponent with it by using the last ability. Seems extremely unlikely. Very. Um, yeah. So the marginal utility of this is extremely low. Which means it's not yeah. going to be a reliable card, which means that this is an uh, just a minor uptick in Dark Ritual decks. Yeah, I would now, say so. It, but yeah. but that's not necessarily the only home. And or we haven't considered if you could reconstruct a deck to really abuse this better. Yes. For example, those DPS decks traditionally don't run uh, top, which is obviously yes. perfect friends with yeah. this card. Yeah, and they do run preordain, which is also really good with this. Naturally. Um but whereas the Burning Tendrils decks tended not to run any of the one mana spells except maybe like Brainstorm or Ponder. Yeah. Um so you know, the Cantrippy so ones. Th- we should point out that this plus Sensei's Divining Top turns this into bar- a bargain. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's except except it's better than bargain 
because any of the spells that you wanted to cast, like any of the one mana spells, they, they instead of going into your hand, they go onto the stack, as we discussed before, right? So it's like, imagine a bargain where when you drew a ritual, it was free. <laughs> when you draw a duress, yep. it's free, right? You draw a mana vault, it was free. So it has that advantage. Yes. There is one other advantage over bargain, which mm-hmm. is, well, probably lots, <laughs> but one other subtle advantage. Bargain and necropotence are basically superfluous. You could hit necropotence with this and be quite happy about that. Sure. I see quite your point. Quite happy. Yeah. Because you can pay one life to just move the next card off the top. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. This plus Necro is kind of a fun interaction. You see a land Fair. on top, just just Necro it. You see Gristlebrand yep. on top, just Necro him, you know? Yep. <laughs> yep. That's really actually really interesting. Yeah. That's funny. That's if you didn't have a top anyway, but still. Yeah. It's in, nor- in fact, Necropotence is like the best filtering card with this. <laughs> <laughs> so I would argue that... You're right about the effect that this has on some existing archetypes, especially DPS or other dark ritual-based draw seven kind of decks. But I do think there's space for this to spawn some new variants of those decks with just a couple of deck-building tweaks such that this card becomes a real game-breaker in those decks. Yeah, I I mean, the problem is that Bargain exists right now. Like, accelerating (laughs) out Bargain is basically a good game. Yeah. Like, so I just don't see this coming out ahead of Bargain. In that regard, mm-hmm. I do think it's a compliment to Bargain. Interesting. I think this card could be better than Bargain in certain circumstances, but I don't think it's better overall. Yeah. That's the problem. Which but means that like a deck that's designed just to accelerate out Bargain is probably like better on the face of it than one that's designed to accelerate this out. Yeah. See what I'm saying? So this lives it feels like it lives in a space between Bargain and Jar, right? Yeah. I mean It has shared some common equity with both. I, I think that's probably a fair statement, although it's hard to evaluate because <laughs> it, it is. The, con- but I mean, like, the contours of that space are, are odd. Know, but more- see, but so the commonalities, the, the Venn diagram with Jar overlaps on Artifact, so you can tinker it. It overlaps on a certain limitation on how far it can go, right? Jar's only going to see you seven cards, and this is going to go until you can't go anymore, either through life or um, uh, uh, hitting a land, right? Hitting a stopper or something you can't cast. And also there's the limitation just on sequencing. It, uh, it's not really an overlap with Jar. I guess this, that is the same thing as the limitation of the seven cards. Jar only gets you so much. This I expect to only get you so much, right? Whereas the Venn diagram with with Bargain is the the life payment for one, which that doesn't this doesn't yes. share with Jar, as well as the the potential True. to go indefinitely, the potential to go indefinitely throughout your deck for as much life as you can spend, assuming yeah. you don't hit a stopper or have a way around them, right? And then there's right. the the whole six mana thing, right? The, the the requirement of black is what this has in common with bargain. It's just the Venn diagram is interesting and overlaps in many cases. Yeah, I could yeah, see I mean, a deck that would that currently plays one bargain or two bargains fitting this in, either in addition or in replacement of one of the bargains. You know what's interesting though is that this card makes Burning Wish better than than uh, Dark Petition. Because the mana life eating up of Dark mm. Petition is so intense vis-a-vis Burning Wish. So if you can get the red, I mean, basically, it, you, you don't have to worry about color, right? Yep. Because you, like, that's one of the huge advantages of this. That's a good point. Is that, yeah, is that this basically, I mean, that's, the, that's why that additional thing is so powerful. 
that that additional step of putting it directly on the stack mm-hmm. is because it means that you don't have to worry about mana requisites once you have this in play. You don't have to worry about having your green or your red or whatever. You can pay any color in Magic with life. <laughs> That's yeah. incredible. That is I mean, pretty interesting. Means, all the fixing. It means that- it means that you could put in Fast Bond, Burning Wish. I think that's where Burning Wish gets better vis-a-vis Dark Petition because Dark Petition is five life. That's a qu- quarter of your life total with this. <laughs> yeah. Was Burning Wish just being at two is, is really, really good. But there's, there's some other elements to that. One is that Dark Petition frequently generates mana, so it's frequently a dark ritual. Both cards put the card that they get into your hand, meaning you need to pay the mana for it, unlike the stuff on top of your library. So yes, you're paying five versus two, but three of that life is just like a channel for black. You're generating three black with three of that life, which could then play the spell you got. So if you, so the three life th- that you're paying in addition for Dark Petition over Burning Wish is basically translating directly into mana when you have spell mastery, which you don't always right. have. So I would posit that it's not necessarily a, a sure thing that Burning Wish is better. Well, because that's the thing. With this, the mana actually matters less because you're going to have a superfluous amount of mana the entire game with this. Well, the, maybe. Let's just assume. Well, I mean, let's just, not just if you tinkered it out sake, on turn one. But let's assume, for the sake of argument, that every deck with this is going to have four dark rituals. We can oh. dispute that. Sure. And I think it's likely, very likely, more probable than not, it'll have a, a num- some number of cabal rituals as well, probably one or more. And certainly, it's also going to have a lot of artifact acceleration, right? Certainly. Now, all of that acceleration, the rituals and the moxen, are going to go into play, and they're going to be hanging out there waiting for you. Which <laughs> yes. means that, which means that the the additional mana you get through the dark petition actually is going to be super superfluous. Well, <laughs> and, that- and I think that the the burning every time you're going to hit burning wish, you're going to have mana to use. You're going to very not every time, but a large percentage of the time. You hit the Burning Wish, you're going to have either immediately before preceding it or shortly thereafter, plenty of mana to do things with the Burning Wish target. I would say that is sometimes true, but not always. You, you, yeah, yeah. you I know, said, I said the large percentage of the time. Yeah, I mean, you yourself have cast um, Dark Petition with the last five mana in your mana pool plenty of times in your life, right? Sure. My point is simply that you're paying three more life for a Dark Petition, and in many cases, you're getting that three life back in the form of mana, so it's not like... It's not as though you're just overpaying for no good reason. You're, you're actually getting but, a resource but, transfer that's useful. Yes, but what I'm saying is that resource matters a lot less. In, when s- you, in some games, it will. The, yeah. No, what I'm saying is overall, mana is not going to be the bottleneck when you have Bolas's Citadel in play. It just is not. <laughs> I mean, once you get the Citadel in play, the, the pro- you're actually going to have a, a problem of calibrating mana to spells because you're going to be forced to pay life to generate mana. You're going to be forced to play Soul Ring and Mana Vault and Dark Ritual and Cabal Ritual when yep. you really don't want to. <laughs> yeah, so you're going to have a you're going to have a superfluous amount of mana and I I really think that that the I don't even I don't even think it's close. I think that this card makes Burning Wish like by a, by a significant margin. I don't know how large that margin is, whether it's like 10% or 20% better, but it's significantly better. Not fifty percent better, but like significantly better than Dark Petition for the two reasons. That. Yeah, for three reasons that. because oh, you can buy that. Yeah, because yeah. the red because the red doesn't matter as much. You don't have to be as deep in black when you have this in play because the the overall mana cost is less, and because you don't you don't need to have the back end generation with Dark Petition because you already he'll have plenty of mana. Also, 
Interestingly, Burning Wish can help mitigate some of the sequencing challenges that Bolas Citadel can present, meaning you can Burning Wish for the thing you want in the midst of your turn right now. Preordain. Which could, be, which could be a, yeah. a cantrip, it could be a duress, it could be the tendrils, right? Because you're ready for that. It could be a draw seven. Yeah. So that's interesting. This that that flexibility helps mitigate the sequencing challenge that Bolas' Citadel presents. I like that. Also Granted, most tutors would do that, but that's a, a reliable, unrestricted cheap tutor. Right. Also, I, I think that Oath of Druids is probably just fine in like an, a burning oath deck with mm-hmm. this because like you, you can then play the oath, and then you can play all the spells up until you hit a creature or a spell that you don't want to play. In which case, you just ship the turn, come back oath and your upkeep to put the creature into play or to bin the draw seven or the other thing you don't want to play. Oh, and then interesting. You've got a fr- and then you f- the oath has filtered for you. That's a really interesting point, yeah. If you don't feel like going for it or it's not the right thing to do, just drawing until that creature's on top and then you're you're comfortable with your oath plan. Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, you can still circumvent that if you had top or cantrips or brainstorm, but that's some good synergy. And the fact that the oath is so cheap. It's yes. problematic if you hit Gristlebrand as the first card you reveal off of this, right? That's unfortunate. But as you said, sometimes you're going to want to just pay that seven life, play Gristlebrand. Yep. Now, yeah. I wanted to point, life, out a com- I want to point out a couple of other things, Kevin. Um, first of all, being an artifact means that this is obviously a huge disadvantage over enchantments and that's much easier to destroy yeah um, true we have to acknowledge that yep um secondly bargain is better with counter magic and ad nauseum is better than counter magic with counter magic than this meaning that counter magic if you have a lot of counter magic like missteps and forces and packs they're going to get stuck mm-hmm. they're going to be that's going to be a problem now it's not the end of the world because you can just keep it on top and then pass the turn and then play it if your opponent plays a spell that's and, true and move along so it's not like it's not like ad nauseum where everything has to happen in one moment <laughs> you can you dis- distribute the spells over t- over time, right? Yep. But and, it's still not not yeah. ideal. <laughs> and Sensei's Divining Top goes a long way to help mitigate that, right? Definitely. Sensei's Divining Top plays very just, well with this and, say, Fluster Storm or Pact of Negation. Yeah, you just use the top over and over. Yep. The other thing that I wanted to point out that ha- there's a huge advantage of this card over Bargain, over Necro, and over Gristlebrand is that this cannot be Pithy Needled or Phyrexian Revokered to stop oh, its core effects. Interesting. Yeah, good point. Wow. Yeah, your opponent plays uh, Sorceress Spyglass on you on the first turn, and they see this. They just they could name it, but all it does is shut off the, the, the semi-useless fourth ability. <laughs> yes. That's a good way of putting that. It's yeah. semi-useless. There we go. Yeah. That's, that's the perfect frame for that. I think um, that's, actually, that's actually relevant, right? An environment where, ne- where Needle and Revoker are so omnipresent in the format in almost every, almost every archetype. Yes. That's interesting. Usually relevant. This thing is just static ability. It can't be null rotted either, of course. Yep. Not yep. that. Uh, Good point. It's an artifact. So, um, like Jar can be. Just uh, that's why I mentioned that. Because Jar, yeah, if you were, were debating the turn one tinker play. That, you know, a resilience to both Revoker and Null Rod is that's big game in the modern vintage format. Yeah. Oh, but there's a obvious problem with Dak Fade. <laughs> 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 you definitely don't want to get this dacked. Oh God, no! <laughs> that's that'd uh, be pretty unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> so this card is pretty amazing. I, I I do think the the artifact being an artifact is a huge drawback over being an enchantment. Um, I mean, just just Hercules Recall is going to be a pain. Yeah. Now, I I think the fact that I think that the Hercules the problem with Hercules Recall is not that um. I mean, it, it's a weird problem, and, and the reason I'm, I'm pausing there or hesitating is because I want to delineate where in the turn structure we are that that becomes relevant. Right? Okay. It's not like it's not like a Dark Steel Colossus where it's like or Blight Steel Colossus where like 
in your attack step, your opponent hurkles this, and then you can't replay it. If if you go to your first main phase with this in play, yep. you can probably get a lot of value out of it, and your opponent's hurkles is not going to be able to stop it because if you like, if they go hurkles, and you're like, okay, I'll play dark ritual off the top, I'll play another ritual off the top, or <laughs> I'll play this other instant off the top. You still get a lot of value, and they just rebuild or replay it, right? That's pretty generous. The, the well, DPS well, decks like, don't have a lot of instant. Let's say you have, but if you have one ritual in hand and one on the top of your library, you're probably pretty close to being able to replay it. With, uh, that's, with that's under. fair. So, so what I'm saying is that, um, you know, th- where it becomes awkward is when your opponent goes end step ritual. I mean, end step hercules. This they probably the hercules is probably not as crippling in your one of your main phases as it would be as it is at the end of the turn. That's all I was trying to get at. That's it. Well, I think it's still moderately disruptive, but for the kind of deck we're talking about, I'd like say marginally, yeah, by the way. D- DPS, the, Hercules Recall is the kind of card you board out against DPS anyway, right? <laughs> well, unless it's, you're trying to overcome a defense grid, in which case you need anti artifact. Yeah, uh, tactics Hercules anyway. Recalls, yeah, it's pretty bad at fighting defense grid also. But regardless, I take your meaning. It's it's not it's not the end of the world to get this bounced with Hercules Recall, especially if you can manage to get even one card's worth of value. Well, you're guaranteed to get one card's worth of value. Assuming it's a castable card on top, because you get to cast it before you, they get priority. But if there's an instant that's underneath it, then yes, you can get some more value. And Sensei's Divining Top helps you set that up too. Does this card make Ancestral Visions free? Uh, yes, it does. Well, there's a whole subset of cards like that. There's like Hypergenesis, uh, the Balance variant, Ancestral yeah, Vision. Yeah. Vision. Modern <laughs> players will get to the bottom of this ASAP if they haven't already. Wow. Cool. Cool, so, cool, cool. We need to build like a four personal tutor deck to try and tinker this up as quickly as possible. <laughs> or show and tells to just get, because yeah. if you could start chaining ancestral visions, well, wow, that's powerful. That is pretty powerful. So we've talked about some potential homes for this deck. I'd, I'd like to pose the question very literally. Do you think that this makes any kind of a new deck? Well, it, it's certainly, so let's just, let me just canvas exhaustively how I think this can be used. Okay. Mm hmm. Number one, it can go into DPS as a one or two of. Number two, it can go into other Dark Ritual Storm combo decks like Burning Tendrils or Burning Oath as a one or a two of. Number three, it could go into other heavy artifact uh, combo decks like the Experimental Frenzy deck, that type of deck. Number four, it could be a completely new design where you are just trying to accelerate this out using Tinker and Show and Tells without Rituals or complemented by Rituals. So those are like basically options four, five, and six. Um, and you could like just try and accelerate out show and tell and tinker with uh, tutors and protect them with uh, what's the uh, Bizeju. So yeah. you could do that kind of thing. Um, so there's certainly like imagine you play with like a multi Bizeju deck with show and tell and flusterstorm and pact of negation. I could see something like that. You know, ancestral visions try and win on a single turn once you resolve it. That's possible. It's not. A, it's not. It's not like beyond the realm of possibility to imagine, right? <laughs> yep. It doesn't yep. mean that it's very likely, extremely unlikely. But I think those are basically the universe of possibilities. Yeah, as well as the tweaked versions of the various existing decks, as you mentioned. So yeah, those are options one, two, and three. <laughs> it strikes me as essentially all those things are very small slices of the pie, right? DPS is not a, a large component of the metagame right now. Uh, neither is burning tendrils even less so in fact and the new constructions of the deck would almost certainly be small components of the metagame similar or less than those decks yeah so even if all those things happened if it became a one of in dps and burning tendrils and there was some new construction 
it would probably be about as common as, say, Experimental Frenzy was. Yes, which did actually have a number of top eights. It's appeared in the challenge top eights a number of times. In terms of our threshold being above 32 players, it was only two top eights. Experimental Frenzy. Those were vintage challenges. Made two, yep. In the hands of Saturn both times. And one other smaller appearance in LCV, 26 players, so just below our threshold. So about a two for Experimental Frenzy. That's about where I would expect this card as well. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Let me make one more comparison, and that is Yawgmoth's Bargain. So Yawgmoth's Bargain had, looks like, one top eight in a challenge so far this year, and a couple other 20-person-ish tournaments. So, By the way, sorry, go ahead. So so onesie twosie sounds about right, I would say. By the, the way, I think actually the Burning Wish configuration just makes this, so, the more I think about, the more better it gets. Because <laughs> the cards that you don't want to hit, you can just put in your sideboard. Will and Tendrils can go on the board with this, which both makes them more accessible with, with Burning Wish, but also means you don't have to debate, do I play a premature Will here? And you'll never hit the Tendrils if you don't want to. Yeah, you're still going to have some a couple of situational cards in like Rituals, or not Rituals, um, Duresses, right? But that's pretty low. That's yeah, a really that's low fine. drawback. Yeah. What you don't want is like draw sevens that you don't want to play. That's the awkward yeah. spot. So you yeah, probably have to go down on draw seven somehow. Yeah. Is my guess. But if you're going up in Burning Wish, then you can get a draw seven if you want it. <laughs> you know, and you, you probably can, keep jar just because it's jar. <laughs> and you can play with proactively disruptive effects like defense grid that you're not going to be unhappy yes. to hit also. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I totally think that's reasonable. So I'm just going to go for a single one. I'm going to go for a one. I think this card is... I'll take the above. I'll take two. I think this card is immensely powerful. It really is. It's it's awesomely powerful. I mean, it's channel plus Yawgmaw's bargain in ad nauseum. (laughs) I mean, it really is incredible. It really, really is. And watching someone go off with this is going to be pretty fun and satisfying, I think. All right. Let's move on to Jace, Wielder of Mysteries. One UUU, Legendary Planeswalker Jace, four loyalty. This is one of those new planeswalkers with a static ability, which all the ones in the set awesome. have. Yeah. yeah, they only have two. Uh, the rares only have two abilities. Yeah, yeah, two abilities. If you would draw a card while your library has no cards in it, you win the game instead. AKA Pl- Lab Maniac. Yep. Plus one. Target player puts the top two cards of their library into their graveyard. Draw a card. Minus eight. Draw seven cards. Then, if your library has no cards in it, you win the game. So, what's interesting... Well, there's a lot to say about this, but what's interesting... Mm-hmm. I just want to draw attention to the static ability and the ultimate. Yeah. They're very close. The only difference, <laughs> is, so far as I can tell, aside from the fact that you actually get to draw seven, mm-hmm. is that if you were to draw... Let's suppose you had seven cards in your library. Mm-hmm. You would just win immediately as opposed through... So, that's the only time that that would actually right. make a difference from the static ability. That's right. It's giving you that exact <laughs> corner case where you have exactly seven cards in your library. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Not very helpful, by the way. But um, nah, Not really. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, you've got Lab Maniac ability and Static ability. Mm-hmm. You've got one of the things that we've said has been really important over and over again with the Jaces or any of the Blue Planeswalkers is card advantage. Yep. You know, or at least virtual card advantage, which Dak Faden gives you. Um, right. This actually gives you immediate card advantage, but no real built-in selection, right? Right. Like, you have to have something else to help set that up. And you have to... It takes four turns, five turns, actually. No, well, four four after the turn you play it to get yeah. to the draw seven. So, I, I just think, you know, when you... 
I'm going to conflate multiple elements here, <laughs> but I think um, when you combine the mana cost with the lack of like the awkward utility, I just don't think this is a very playable card. Yeah, it's, I, agree, I agree completely. You can get a little bit more um, indirect card advantage by taking advantage of the things that you mill, if assuming you mill yourself, right? So Snapcaster Mages and other flashback spells like our Ancient Grudge can give you virtual card advantage by milling yourself. So that's something. The, there is something to be said about this mana cost, though, right? I mean, unlike Jace the Mind Sculptor, how many times have you cast Jace the Mind Sculptor on turn two, right? With two Moxen or something like that. It, it's real hard to do with this Jace. So it's, yeah. it's meaningfully slower thanks to this triple designated mana cost. And that combined with the fact that there's also no board impact at all, which Jace the Mind Sculptor is also known for. I just think that except for the ultimate, which is pretty cool, this card pales in every other access to Jace the Mind Sculpt. Unless you're yeah. planning to put this into some kind of archetype that's planning to make use of the static ability to win the game, which for which Laboratory Maniac is is much easier to cast. Especially in a world now where we have so many pyroblasts going around, Laboratory Maniac is... I mean, this Jace is only slightly more robust than Laboratory Maniac at even staying alive. <laughs> yeah. Briefly. Um, the fact that it has four loyalty means it doesn't get bolted right away, but still, the, the, if there, if this was a three mana Jace, then we might be talking about playing it instead of Lab Man, right? In some Doomsday builds or something. But at four mana, I just can't find a home for this. I agree. I, I don't think this is playable. All right. Let's talk about one that's going to be a little bit harder to tease out, I think. And that is Flux Channeler. Two you, creature, human, wizard. It's a two-two. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, proliferate. And for a reminder, proliferate is choose any number of permanents and or players, then give each another counter of each kind already there. <laughs> Which is actually an upgraded wording for a proliferate. I'm not sure if that's widely known at this point, but... Oh, interesting. Previously, proliferate allowed you to only give one kind of counter that the, that the, the permanent or player had. Now you get one of each that it has. So if a, if a permanent, like, if a time vault became a creature <laughs> and had yeah. a plus one counter on it or something in the old version, that's a funny example. But you see my point is if you get two different kinds of counters on something, either your person or a permanent, this new version of proliferate gives you one of each of them when you, when you trigger it. So this is an interesting one, Steve. The phrase, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, obviously should make any vintage player perk up, right? It's inherently inherently easy to trigger in vintage and you need to look no further than something like monastery mentor to see the example of that this card's no monastery mentor but it gives you a different kind of resource obviously so, so discuss you application to, yeah what do you, you need to mind? have some kind of permanence basically or player like if you gave someone infect then you could kill them with this assuming you play nine other spells right um so that's one thing you could this could be part of an infect kill theoretically but I think that's unlikely. The more likely is you're going to have some kind of permanent that has counters on it where those counters become valuable to you in generating some kind of resource, generating value, right? An easy example is Planeswalkers, right? You play yeah. this, and you play a Planeswalker, and then every other spell you, every non-creature spell you play adds loyalty to that Planeswalker. You could play Dak Faden, plus Dak up to four. Next turn, play this, and another cantrip or something, and boom, Dak goes ultimate that same turn, right? Yeah. Similarly with other ultimate planeswalkers that are relevant in vintage, like Jace the Mind Sculptor or Teferi or something like that. Similarly, if you can find a permanent whereby its its counters are meaningful in a vintage context from a resource standpoint, then you get all those. Take a look at 
walking ballista, hanger back walker, right? Every non-creature spell you play with a walking ballista is going to put a counter on that walking ballista. So, th- I mean, there's a lot, number of problems with that. Number one, you're going to play blue and a walking ballista together. <laughs> Typically <laughs> doesn't happen. It's not impossible. No. But uh, ballista mostly shows up in shops. Very rarely shows up in, like, White Eldrazi or things like that. Uh, corner case use in uh, Bomberman, too. Sure. Yep. It's funny. If there was a Lotus-type card that sacked for exactly two mana, <laughs> this would allow you to go infinite with Bomberman. <laughs> but huh. but no such card exists. Bomberman doesn't need any help going infinite, given the fact that the Bomberman combo already generates infinite mana, and Ballista doesn't need any help from a Flux Channeler. But the literal answer to your question is along those lines. Such a deck that was that could reliably trigger this and was getting value off of additional counters from its permanence is the way this would generate a home. There are a handful of cards that don't see play in Vintage where the permanence, where the counters, for example, can be removed from mana, like, for example, Pentad Prism, right? <laughs> are you yeah. familiar with Pentad Prism? Oh, yes. I love that yeah. card. Well, there you go. So you sunburst out a Pentad Prism, remove one of the counters to play for a Flux Channeler, and now every non-creature spell you play basically generates a mana. You can potentially go infinite. I mean, theoretically, with cantrips, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, like a, like a Storm 10 type deck, you could, yep. yeah. I have not yet canvassed all the <laughs> cards that don't see play in Vintage, but that could because of this. Pentad Prism comes to mind, um, and there are just a number of creatures in this world that just get better when they have counters on them, and you can do crazy things with them, of course. But the simplest use cases, I think, are Planeswalkers, and with a, a peppering of some other thing that's going to get you multiple value out of this. Ultimately, I think it's a pretty soft sell in the face of two and three mana cards that generate, I think, better value by yeah. playing spells like Young Pyromancer and Monastery Mentor, things like that. Mana Gorger Hydra, right? So I think it's a tough sell, but I also think there is a corner case combo deck probably to be had here. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, there may be some corner case. I like the, the idea of Pentad Prism with this is intriguing. Uh, I don't think Vintage, though, right now suffers from mana generation problems. So it's, it, it, to me, it's like a solution in, in search of a problem, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? understood. Uh, uh, but it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm a zero on this card, so... Well, fair enough. I think that intrepid deck builders may find a home that we haven't necessarily considered, but I do think that the mana cost here of three, while completely reasonable for vintage, also um, puts it on the outside of effects you would want just to be engine cards in vintage. Yeah, yeah. And that's pretty that's pretty rough. So I think at face value I am probably a zero on this as well. But look out for various interactions that would take a preordained style, preordained cantrip top ritual maybe kind of shell and supercharge it if you just had this in play. So be on the lookout. And I also think the card is ridiculous in EDH, but we don't need to go there. <laughs> Next up, Dread Horde Anarchist. One R Creature Human Wizard. It's a 1-3. Trample. Whenever Dreadhorde Anarchist attacks, you may cast target instant or sorcery card with a converted mana cost less than or equal to Dreadhorde Anarchist's power from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. If that card would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile it instead. Before we go anywhere, what's the name of the reverse red Snapcaster? Yeah, that's uh, Direfleet Daredevil. Daredevil. Okay. Yeah. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this card definitely evokes that in an indirect way. (laughs) (laughs) This is a zombie wizard. Yeah. Makes sense. Um. (laughs) (laughs) So what we've got here is a kind of 
one turn delay, it's a, it's but a it's re- a reusable Snapcaster. Yeah, exa- exactly. You just put it perfectly. Yep. I was going to say recursive, but it's really more just a kind of reusable Snapcaster. It's exactly yeah. right. With a, with a turn delay. I, I love and that. Though, is rarefied air, by the way. <laughs> oh, it's just incredible. This card is yeah. incredible. Um, <laughs> I think it's better than Dare, Direfully Daredevil for sure. Oh, absolutely. One of, the, one of the things that we talked about in, in the podcast in which we reviewed Dar, Dare, Dare Fleet Daredevil. Dire, dire fleet. fleet. Let's just call it DFD. It's like a regular fleet, only dire. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> when, we, when we reviewed DFD, the problem, one of the problems we mentioned is that like the way the cantrip decks go, they snowball. And yeah. so like you're, you want to maximize what you have, not like what your opponent has, like not be from a position of being behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, it's, it's just an inherently weak card vis-a-vis Snapcaster Mage, in addition to being red over blue. Yep. Uh, this card suffers none of that problem. This <laughs> Not is at a, all. This is a snowball card par excellence. Mm-hmm. It is. It, it it means every time you use it, that you gets better and better. Now let's just line it up directly with Snapcaster. Okay, not the power and toughness of the trample, just the effect. Snapcaster is mm-hmm. instant. It's flash, which means it's easier to use with instants, meaning that you can like get counter magic and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. This card is better. I mean, in just the sense that, and also it means that you, even if the Snapcaster is immediately destroyed, you still get the flashback. The ability you still got goes the up. Value. The, yeah, yeah, you get the value. Um, this card requires, as you said, to protect it for a turn. But look how easy that actually is to do. I mean, basically, Jace Friend's Prodigy is is like Exhibit A mm-hmm. of keeping a card in play for a turn and then beginning to reuse it. Right. Mm-hmm. But unlike Jace Friend's Prodigy, this can be used every turn <laughs> literally every turn <laughs> yep and you um now it's more restrictive in that it has to be one mana or less <laughs> yeah um you can't but th- that range is enormous i mean that range Port, yeah. encompasses preordain ancestral recall uh pyroblast lightning bolt swords to plowshares fragmentize shattering spree uh you know it goes on and on right <laughs> yep it expels too. There's not a lot of in vintage. Scratch that. If you cast an X spell with this, the X will have to be zero. Yeah. So it doesn't work with by force. Yeah. So um this card, basically you have to juxtapose it next to Snapcaster. Snapcaster is an instant, this isn't. Snapcaster mm-hmm. therefore can be used to get counter magic. This basically can't. Snapcaster, you get the value with Snapcaster, even if Snapcaster is destroyed, this you don't. But mm-hmm. wait in the plus column against all of that <laughs> is that you can use this multiple times and there's more than that it's and not you, you, and you don't play the man spells mana cost you don't play the spells mana cost it's free it's free it, it's free you and, just attack with this and point the lightning bolt in your graveyard and say bolt your blocker before blocks yes and also <laughs> what's awesome about it is that you unlike an ophidian effect you don't mm-hmm. actually have to get into the red zone it's just the attack trigger yeah. Which means you don't have to worry about that. It's basically Aphidian, but triggering on attacking, which is incredible. Yeah. And <laughs> this lets you cast sorceries during combat. So yes, yes, you can't you can't fluster storm effectively with this, but you do get to like swing at shops and fragmentize before blockers. Which is awesome. Now and, one- and there's ahead. one other there's one other big benefit here is that you can play this proactively, which you can't do with Snapcaster. You can't go landmark Snapcaster on your first turn. 
barring right. mental right. missteps. This right. is a turn one play. This is just land. This is landmarks go. I've got this. This is the card that I've been dreaming about for a long time. I mean, I love <laughs> Jay's Friends Prodigy, but this card is yeah. great. Like this card it, it is, is exactly what I want. It can't be pyroblasted. Um, it's it's. I mean, it can be bolted like all of those cards, but I also love that this is just a one three. Like the Ophidian yeah. body has always mattered from the day <laughs> yeah. that from the day that Pete Red decks would play turn one Goblin Lackey. Like the Ophidian body is good. <laughs> like, yep. It exists for a reason. <laughs> like, like you, you just want that, you know? Yeah, this matches up favorably with uh, Revoker and like Naked Ravagers, right? And Lavinia, uh, all and kinds Lavinia. of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Death, Dark Death Confidant. Right yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just you could go down the list, right? I mean, we're doing it right and now. Opposing Snapcasters, for example. Uh, how about opposing Young Pyromancer? Yeah, good one. Even Monastery Mentor, right? Yep. Yes, they can. They could prowess mid combat and, so, and get you, but you're still getting your value. Yeah. So yeah. I I love this card. I I think the question, the only question is, oh, pyroclasm. Yes, this is great with pyroclasm. The only question I have is, is this better than Snapcaster Mate? And I think the obvious answer is that sometimes it will be, and sometimes mm-hmm. it won't be. So the relevant question then becomes. What proportion of the time is it better? And what proportion of the time is it worse? Mm-hmm. And in what shells is it better? And in what shells is it worse? And then finally, what, are those shells better or worse than the other? <laughs> That's really what matters, right? Yeah. Those are the relevant questions. I've literally asked every question that matters right there. <laughs> Th- right? Those are the three questions that matter. They, there's anything else that matters falls underneath that. Like, Better in the metagame is un- un- encompassed in the third question, right? Um, yep. The design questions are all encompassed in the second question. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, I think that there is a good chance that this is in a deck that's better with it than Snapcaster Mage. I'm really excited to build this card because this is, like, the reason I like Jace Friend's Prodigy over a Snapcaster is because it's a turn one play. It's more proactive. This is does everything I want, just about everything I want Jace Friends Prodigy to do. And yeah. it has a, a bit of power, <laughs> which means that when you get multiples of these going, you yeah. can then... Now, th- there's a huge, huge drawback, which is that it can't cast four cards I want it to cast. Mm-hmm. It can't time cast walk. Time Walk, it can't cast Treasure Cruise, and it can't cast Dig Through Time, Those and it can't cast Gush. Those <laughs> are the four cards that I, wa- I want... I use Jace Friends Prodigy for all the time. Those are the... S- the strategic cards that really matter. Yeah. But, but. I, what? Yeah. But you get, um, you get a huge advantage. You, you are more likely to find those cards and be able to cast them normally by the fact that you're doubling up on all your preordains, right? I might even go into like one serum visions just to test it. <laughs> I'm serious. Just because you want consistent you. value with this. And like, also, I just wanted to caveat that this card can cast time walk if you can find a way to increase its power. I know we don't do much of that in Vintage, but if you had any effect that increased this creature's power, it can cast larger spells. Yeah, what do you have in mind? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's a Planeswalker that will ultimately end up playing that has, you know, creature gets plus something. <laughs> I, I don't know. There's nothing that comes to mind at the moment, but I just wanted to point out that that is technically possible. Yeah. And if you had some incidental way to do it, equipment, for example, if you put Skull Clamp on this. Oh, yeah. Now Good it's point. a 2-2, and it can cast Time Walk That's for you. That's a perfect example. Skull Clamp sometimes is played in those decks, yeah. In the Pyromancer decks, absolutely, sure. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to caveat I, that. Someone might be confused. I think that, in general, Snapcaster probably and may, remains a bit better. 
because of the broader reach and Snapcaster has more flexibility and is used yeah. in non-Xerox decks. The interaction with Counter Magic, I think, is huge, right? Yeah, I mean, less for less for my Xerox deck because I, yeah, I mean, I, I prefer know. like four JVP over over Snap. So but, that's an interesting but, point. But, if you're the sort of player who is playing a lot of JVPs, your deck is already inherently designed to work well with this. Yes. But the mm-hmm. problem is Snapcaster Mage isn't just used in Xerox decks. It's used in like the decks that you top eighted the Vintage Championship with years ago. Yeah. Like basically Grixis type decks too, which yep. do want to flashback counter magic more. You know, Absolutely. like like Bug and Rug and uh and um and Grixis. Those mm-hmm. decks Grixis, that kind of deck, those use a Snapcaster, they're not going to use this over Snapcaster. Almost certainly not. I will point out the, the fact that, um, oh gosh, this card gets way better with some of the Grixis cards, like Fatal Push. Oh, it's so nice with that. It's just so nice with Duresses, right? Yeah. Just being able to oh, double yeah. up on your thought seizes. God, that's incredible. Yeah. Gri- I completely anyway. forgot about that. Yeah, Grixis Pyromancer with this, that's incredible. Yep. Because you get such a, you get a much deeper set of, in, God, how funny is duress mid combat? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty comical, actually. So, anyway, I mean, so you've already alluded to it. The homes for this deck are going to be certain blue red pyromancer style decks or Jeskai variants, certain Grixis shells, perhaps some things that maybe a little bit of a flashback. Right, Grixis pyromancer is not a, a main player right now. Right? Do you think this has a place in a rug pyromancer kind of deck? It's not very well doesn't really need to be good with ancient grudge um i guess my question possibly, is more along the lines actually, of possibly even though even though this card you, is you know what i probably, love the idea of playing pyroclasm with this i know I so do I. That. <laughs> I even it. though this card is going to maybe on average be a little less good than snapcaster mage on average there are certainly cases where it's better as you've alluded do you think you take a deck that has three snapcaster mages and three py- uh, young pyromancers right now and cut some of those for this I think you got to rebuild from the ground up. Okay. I, you, the the result may be the same, but I think there's so many little synergies that you have to work re- work around this. Like yeah. for example, um, you probably want to be playing Bolt over Plow with this. You know, although Almost certainly, you know, although Snapcaster also is better with Bolt. Um, Agreed. You probably want to be playing. I, I think there's a lot of corner things that need to change. Yeah. So and your removal. Yeah. So your removal package needs to take yeah. this into account. Makes like your sense. sideboard needs to be reconfigured to be more around the one mana cost. <sighs> This you card know. is so incredibly good with Shattering Spree. Yeah, like like oh if you're my running God. by force, you got to run Shattering Sprees. With this, you're not paying the initial red. God, that's good. <laughs> so if so you just good. if you just spree for all red one, is bonus. It's all bonus. Right. If you just spree for one and then attack with this, I mean, not the same turn, but if you earlier on you had spreed for one, then you get yeah. an attack with this two turns later. You're oh. not paying the initial mana cost, so the second R you play is just a replicate. You can also kind of screw with your opponents, like tap down your black if you're playing Grixis, and then like attack and then duress, like they, they <laughs> and they might not not realize that you can duress them. That's you know? really interesting. And Pyroblast is just obviously great with this card oh, because God, yeah, you don't it, even need of red it's, du- it's double duty, right? It's so good. This card is, is re- probably going to be really good at killing Dak Faden. It's also really good with Dak Faden because you want to get more yes. options to bin. Like you want to be mm-hmm. you, that actually will completely change the Dak Faden calculus because then you won't be keeping like those like uh, preordains yeah. you can bin them. You know that's great. All those preordains that you discard to Dak because you just don't need the filtering or because every other card you drew was superior. Basically, then yeah, you get to have incidental value out of all those. You're right about this card being a kind of a snowball card. I could see games just being taken over 
by hitting one of these, yeah. doubling up on a preordained early, and this then you land another one. Card. It's a Fidian type card. It really is it's, a Fidian type snowball. And then once you get multiples <sighs> of them, and you got Dak going, then it's just like it's. I mean, you, yeah, what you need to is, really do is figure out how to use all the stuff. Like you got to <laughs> figure know. out. Like you got to you got to make sure you're designed your deck. So you have like a ton of bolts, a ton of removal, and a ton of cantrips. <laughs> oh, how interesting. So interesting. I love it. So let's let's move toward estimation. I've validated that young that the one point of comparison, young Pyromancer has put up twenty nine top eights okay. in in this year so far. Yeah. I, there's I no don't way, necessarily there's no think way there's this a one- isn't appearing in top eights. We agree with that, oh, right? This oh, is, absolutely. Yeah, this is card is insane. What I'm, what I'm getting at is, I mean, we've, we've gone through this exercise so many times. There's no way that every young Pyromancer deck just starts playing this. No, for sure. Right? For sure. Not 100%. I mean, I think this will be seen play outside of Pyromancer decks, too. So. Yes. It, it, it absolutely will. I'm just using that as a, a bellwether. So I would say some portion of, of like well, Rug Pyromancer types decks will adopt this. Maybe it's only onesie twosie. We'll see. Early on, at least. Then there's other decks you said, like Grixis variants, that aren't very popular right now, but could become slightly more so on the back of this card. That's probably a small volume. And then there's, obviously, Jeskai builds and other similar Xerox decks that could try this. Are there other decks that would like this card that we're not thinking of? Are there decks, for example, that can't play Snapcaster that this card goes into, like... uh Jund variants. I mean, I, any I mean, I've seen red I've seen Jundy any decks. Blue deck with red. Any basically blue, red, black, blue, red, green, blue, red, white, blue, red can all potentially use this card. Right. Uh, yeah, I was you, just trying to figure out if there's blue, another green, if there's a non-blue deck. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Green. Green. Red. Black. Possibly. I think it's going to be hard to protect this card if you're if you're just playing Jund. It's not a human, so it can't go in the humans deck, and they don't play cantrips and that stuff anyway. Right. So, um, probably not. Yeah. You're probably right. There are some Jund aficionados out there, and they might be enamored with a card like this with a particular flavor of Jund if you're a little higher on instance, as you said. But it's hard to make it work. You, you could only put so many thought, thought seizes in your Jund deck. Anyway, just I was just trying to cover all our bases there. So I feel like this the calculus on how much this is going to be played is some significant portion of young Pyromancer decks could try this. My guess would be 10 to 40%. I don't know ballpark less than half i would say early on you know in in the next three months but even if that's the case that number then becomes what what's the math between three and 12 occurrences right there and that's only in young pyromancer type builds then you have to look at various other jeskai type lists that don't play any red creatures today that would try this and or lists like yours with jvp that would try this so i think the number i think this is probably a 10 to 20 card and it might be a slow burn, but I think that's I right. Think this card is fantastic. I think that's right. I'm going to go twelve. Yeah, that's reasonable. I I tend to think that people will be a little bit hesitant to adopt this early until maybe they've seen it in action, just because creatures with attack triggers like this. It's been a long time since Ophidian was good, right? Yeah. And creatures with attack triggers like this haven't been good enough in vintage for years, and as such, and there's no good model for this for people to rely on. So. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go sub ten. I'm gonna go eight. I think that's, that's reasonable. I'm I'm being pretty generous. Yeah, I think that's I think slow that's, to pick on, but this could also pick on really quickly because people like Xerox decks. Now, again, <laughs> the true. problem is that you can't flashback gush uh, uh, in the the two delve spells and right. time walk. But that doesn't mean you can't also play you know D- JVP on top of it to be able to do that. So and like, this card can, synergizes very well with JVP. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, I completely agree. So I just the only reason I'm going low is just because I think it's a slow burn and it's a it's a tricky card to model after it's I not think obvious. The floor is like five, four or five. Yeah. Um but I think the ceiling is like twenty. So I do too. Uh, I think uh, the ceiling I mean this could be a long term <laughs> player in the format. So I, I, I probably think we're probably gonna get like maybe we might probably realistically get six or so, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with twelve. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to burning profits. One red creature human wizard. It's a 1-3. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, Burning Prophet gets plus 1, plus 0 until end of turn. Then, scry 1. So, we've it, talked, it's a 1-3. Yeah. yeah, it's a 1-3 that only grows its power. Yes. So, there are a ton of growing creatures. There mm-hmm. are... Let's just quickly recap all of them. Quirion, <laughs> I mean, there's not you know more than a dozen. That, that, see, there's Quirion Dryad, Myth mm-hmm. Realized, Delver of Secrets, Monastery Mentor... Mana Gorger Hydra. Um, there's the uh, what's the one that grows really fast but has a really small, a really small butt. Um, it gets um, like plus three for every instant or sorcery. Oh yeah, I've completely blanked on the name of that one. I'll find it in a moment. Okay. But there's also Young Pyromancer. Young, young Pyromancer with there's the horizontal growth Pyromancer. Um, if I had my gush book in front of me, I could go through the list. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he- here's the point I want to make though. The point I want to make is that. All of them, all of them, without exception, have either vertical or horizontal growth, mm-hmm. and solely that. Now, 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 the one exception is I think some of them get trample, um, right. or have trample. They either or get it trample. or they have yeah. it. The one, this is the first one I've ever seen that splits the growth in terms of power and a scry. Some or, other effect. Or some other effect, right. Yeah. Which is Kiln very- Kiln Fiend, by the way. Kiln Fiend, thank you. So this is very strange, right? I mean, it's like- Imagine if there was a growing creature that said, like, whenever you play a sorcery, this gets plus two, plus oh until end of turn, and your opponent mills two. You're like, what? <laughs> what? Like, what does that have to do with this, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. that's kind of what this is doing. So it, it introduces a wild card, right? We know there's a gradient that exists mm-hmm. for evaluating the growing creatures. Yep. But the only thing we've had to go on is whether it's vertical or horizontal, and we know that the horizontal growth is superior to vertical growth. Uh, whether the rate of growth, right? Like, what is the rate of growth per spell? Right. Um, and what are the what's the level of conditionality? Is it narrow or is it broad? Like every spell, like the the extreme, like Menagorge or Hydra, right? To yep. narrow, uh, narrower, and there's different levels of that. Those are the yep. dimensions in which we've. Di- and then, and then, as I said, the rate, like the the amount it grows at a time. Like Delver only go goes from one to three, and it doesn't yep. go any further than that. And then there's like unbounded growth, limited growth. Like there's caps, right? There's like exponential inc- growth, like expo- monastery mentor, <laughs> right? Exponential, and then there's like like uh, leaps, like kiln fiend, like three, yep. six, nine, twelve. Um, this has a very, very low rate of growth, so I don't think this card is playable. But what I think it does is it introduces a new design element that we have to closely watch, mm-hmm. which is what is the value of scrying or any any other effect, right? Right. Combined with it. One I mean, of the things I like about the, you know, Scry is not inherent card advantage, right? It's right. It's card quality. It's virtual card, card quality, advantage. virtual card advantage. But it's very synergistic with the sort of decks that would play the card, right? Because a Scry is a great thing to front load onto a preordain, right? Yep. A, a Scry is a great thing to front load onto a, a Sensei's Divining Top, even a Mox, right? It, it's very vintage friendly, is Scry. So for sure. Um. So I mean, like attacking in Scry just isn't a lot of value though you know yeah, agreed i don't I mean, know what cu- what uh, level of scry I would have to have for me to get excited i think it would have to have more <laughs> power and scry for me to get excited 
Well, or if the power increase was permanent, right? Permanent and or uh, horizontally distributed. Yeah. We've just become so spoiled. Mentor is obviously, it's, you know, out in left field, but we've become so spoiled by, over the years, by things like Young Pyromancer and Query and Dryad and Manticore or Hydra now. I mean, the growth being permanent is kind of an expectation at this point for Vintage. Yeah. I mean, the only vertical growth threat that's even viable is Hydra, just because the conditionality is so... Uh, so, yeah, non-existent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also for metagame cons- you know, con- yeah. uh, considerations, because Lightning Bolt doesn't address it very well. So we're going to go with zeros on Burning Profit, yeah? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about one where we're not going to predict zero. Teferi so Time Raveler. <laughs> I, I have supreme confidence. <laughs> and well-founded. <laughs> Teferi Time Raveler. One white-blue. Legendary Planeswalker Teferi, starting loyalty of four. Teferi's static ability is each opponent can cast spells only any time they could cast a sorcery. Plus one, until your next turn, you may cast sorcery spells as though they had flash. Minus three, return up to one target artifact, creature, or enchantment to its owner's hand. Draw a card. Now, I, I don't want to start at casting costs. I want to start because I'm so excited with the static ability. Okay. <laughs> and I want to point out a subtlety about it. Yeah. Okay. One subtlety. The subtlety is that this is not Defense Grid. This is not City of Solitude. This is mm-hmm. not Xanted Swarm. This is actually better than City mm-hmm. of Solitude. It does not restrict your opponent to playing spells on their turn. It restricts your opponent to playing spells in one of two steps on their turn. Yep. That is. And it's, <laughs> and it's which, specific cases during those steps, actually. Yes. Which means that they cannot play spells in their upkeep, in yep. their draw step, in their attack step, and their combat step, rather, or in their end step. Yep. That's and, in, that's incredible. That means you can and, play spells on their end step, and they cannot stop you. <laughs> in addition to all of that, they also can't play spells when there's any other spell or ability on the stack. Yes. So they simply cannot use counter magic. Yeah. Yes, ever. Even if it's their turn, they can't counter <laughs> yeah. your spells. That's that is super subtle. I mean, yeah. what I think is, I mean, I think it's incredible that they can't do any. Like, if you were to remember back in the day, the old EOT Factor Fiction or Gifts Ungiven, <laughs> yeah, like this just completely stops them from being able to respond to that. Not just with counter magic, but with their own draw spells. Mm-hmm. That is brutal. That is really, really demoralizing. Yes, you can't. It- they can't even play counter magic because. Well, also, by the way, Kevin, <laughs> it means that, well, it means that, like, your opponent can't even play removal on the end step. Yeah. Yeah. They have to the main phase. They have to the main phase all their stuff, all the combat tricks, like, um, just innocuous stuff that's like mid combat snapcaster mage. They just don't get to respond to that. Yep. Right. And also, <laughs> one disruption that I love that's very common in, um, in vintage today is the interaction between top and paradoxical outcome. You can no longer tap your top and bounce it with outcome. Wow, that's true. Holy smokes. It just removes that interaction. Holy smokes. So this is this is fairly disruptive to any deck that's trying to interact with you on the stack. My god. And it also removes God. I mean, this is the, it also is, removes some critical, you know, key corner case interactions that you can take advantage of like the snapcaster combat that kind of thing. Kevin, is that just the most disruptive spell like this we've ever seen i'm trying to think like city of solitude was the gold standard in well, 1997 hold on city of solitude was the gold standard in 1997 xanad swarm was the gold standard in 2001 and 2002 defense <laughs> grid is kind of like the card that's played today for that kind of effect 
Um, there were like Orm's Chant and Silence and that kind of thing have seen play. Abeyance. This, abeyance. This so far outstrips those. So, so it's worth far. noting. It's worth noting, Steve, that this is the exact text on the original Teferi, the creature version. This first ability is exactly oh. on that creature. So this is a reprint of Teferi text, so to speak. <laughs> but that creature is, has seen scant, and I mean scant, play in vintage. There are some some diehards that really enjoy that five mana Teferi. Yeah, this, because it this costs ability five is, mana. <laughs> yeah, this ability is um is directly on that same original Teferi. I think I vaguely remember people playing it like once or twice when it came out. Yeah, yep. When did that come out? That was with Time Spiral? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, that the original Teferi was originally Time in Time Spiral. Spiral. Yep. Um, but uh, three mana, I mean, this that's the thing, is that, like, for the three mana crowd and under, yeah. th- I mean, this is basically, like, the modern City of Solitude. It 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 won, it white-blue won. Mm-hmm. And what I'm wondering is, so, so, Kevin, let's forget the other abilities for the moment. <laughs> Would this just be playable? It just white-blue won with just the first line of text. I think uh, the answer I, is yes. I'm not sure about that. But imagine it was just an enchantment, not a planeswalker, I mean. Right. Would it be playable? I would think the short answer is no. I don't think it generates enough value by Interesting. itself. Interesting. Yeah. I think I think it might be. I think it's so absurdly disruptive. I think it might be. But but that's fair. We can degre- we can disagree on that. I could be wrong. <laughs> um okay. But so regardless, we don't can, have to we don't have to face that issue. Yeah, so now you can go to the other elements of the card. <laughs> yeah. So, unlike a lot of Planeswalkers that we've discussed over time, I actually believe that the plus ability on this one is the the least useful part of the card. Agreed. And it will only ever really be used to after gain the, loyalty back yeah. <laughs> yeah, after the minus is used. Or maybe to if you don't have a real good target for the minus, to you know, in preparation, build up some loyalty. So, it has that utility. But the notion of playing sorceries as though they had flash... It says, you may cast sorcery spells, specifically. It doesn't mean anything else, unfortunately, which is strangely restrictive, in my opinion, but only specifically sorcery. So what it means is you can end-step treasure cruise. You can end-step merchant scroll, right? It's it's not that useful. Yes, there are sorceries. Yes, it means you could play a fragmentize in the middle of combat or something against shops, I suppose. So it's not completely without utility, but it's really not the showstopper here. The, the second ability, though... I'm oh, sorry, the third ability the second loyalty ability is quite flexible and also quite generous in giving you card advantage i'm surprised return up to one target artifact creature or enchantment to its owner's hand and then draw a card that is just very universally useful from a tempo standpoint and makes this card compete very favorably with a handful of other cards that are used as removal or tempo or just bounce in this in cases like repeal such that you 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 must face the the notion of whether or not this card is superior to some of those cards in uh, its flexibility, and I think in some cases the answer is yeah. Right. I mean, we are playing repeal in vintage these days. Wow. Is this as efficient as fragmentize? Like, can you use this as your answer to shops? Almost certainly not. But it can be in addition to, and you can get some some good utility out of the fact that you can start with fragmentize, and then if you're lucky, snap back a fragmentize. And then a turn or two later, play this and just get ancillary bounce out of it and draw your card. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it's it's automatic plus, I mean, minus three gives you plus two card advantage is pretty nice mm-hmm. off the bat. Uh, assuming you're counting bouncing a card from their is, battlefield to their hand as card yes, advantage. Yes, then, I am. Yeah. yeah. I, would, I would posit that that's tempo advantage, but yeah, you're, we don't you're need right, to you're right, we don't need debate that. It's, 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 
it's CA temporary CA, <laughs> but you're but you're getting that tempo advantage. The card replaces itself, and you still have a Teferi Planeswalker sitting in play. Yes. Is the thing. Yeah. So if your your opponents, if you've managed to play the tempo game like against shops, right? They go turn one inspector. That's a common play, right? You go land fragmentize your inspector. They're like, okay, I'll play another land and play and play two creatures. You're like, ah, force one of them. I don't want that ravager out there, right? Next turn. Maybe I have another removal spell. Maybe I've got a plow or another fragmentize, but you get that other threat off the board. Then turn after that, they play some something, some another inspector, right? Or, or a, a revoker on your mox. I don't know. But then you land this Teferi and bounce that revoker. If you can get to that magical point in a matchup like that, now, yes, Teferi was just tempo advantage, but Teferi is still just sitting there. And if your opponent doesn't get back over the hump and start fighting that Teferi properly, you're going to get to bounce again in another two turns. And yeah, I think you would consider keeping it around to get up to four loyalty, etc. But that's not the point. The point is you're still getting residual value. And if your opponent can't come back and pressure this Teferi, you're going to get to bounce again and draw another card. Yeah. And and like our analysis of the Dreadhorde Anarchist, like this card can snowball. And it's for such a cheap Planeswalker to be able to snowball like that is impressive. Oh, and similarly, it has an effect what? somewhat like Lavinia, where... It really restricts your opponent, as we previously analyzed, and if you it narrows the options of your opponent to interact with it, right? And if you can, yes. if you can get over the hump of that first point of interaction or two, then then they're really restricted, right? Your opponent, if they can't remove it with the first pyroblast, for example, and they can't fight it, right? Your, your one misstep is just going to resolve on that pyroblast. If they don't find another one in the next couple of cards, then they're drawing force of wills and they're drawing flusterstorm, right? And they're like, well, this is just dead. It's like with Lavinia in play. You draw Treasure Cruise when she's out. Yep, I need to remove her um, before this is a card. I, I want to focus in on the, the first ability. Um, what do you think about, like, what do you have in mind, What you how you might use this? Well, the first the first loyalty ability? Yes, is yes. that what you're saying? Yeah. Oh, I have no plan for that. Like, I'm okay. not going to bend my deck building around that at all. Yes, there are some weird corner cases. Like, if you were playing a Thoughtseize deck and they were empty-handed, <laughs> you could... You could plus this and then thought seize them on their draw step, right? You can you can hold a demonic tutor or a merchant scroll longer than you normally would because of this. So that's nice, right? If you're just plussing this for incidental value because you've already minused it, for example, and you draw a merchant scroll, well, you get to just pass the turn, you know, if if you want. So I think there's some incremental in- incidental advantage. You can do things like pass the turn with treasure crews and fight an interesting fight on their turn, maybe. Like you, 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 you know, you pyro one of their spells and they play something else and you fluster it, right? And now you suddenly have the seven cards in your graveyard. Well, you can just EOT that, that treasure cruise there. So I think it's occasionally going to, going to produce some value, but it's absolutely not the reason to play this card. Well, I'm surprised to hear you say that you don't even think it's that the first ability is, I mean, the, the static ability is really what's most important, right? Yeah. I'm talking about the first loyalty ability. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. Okay. But you, what, you, but do you are, opinion, am I missing something? Well, I, I mean, you don't think this is playable without the other abilities, so it makes me wonder: do, are the other abilities enough to make this a playable card? I guess what I'm you asked me how I'm expecting to use the plus ability, and I'm, I'm expecting no, no, to I'm use it in the way that I'm talking about the static ability. Oh so well, I'm you tra- said the first ability, and I thought you meant the first loyalty no, I, ability. I, yeah, what I'm trying to get at is that you said that the first sta- the first ability, the static ability, if that were all the card were, it wouldn't be playable. And yes. I'm wondering. Well, how much value do the other two things add? A so, lot. It, so, it's the, yeah. the third ability is the one that puts it over the edge. It's the utility okay. of the removal combined well, with immediately replacing itself. That's yes, the thing. Yes. 
Yes. I mean, it I would consider playing this card without the static ability. Is my point? Okay. So because what, of, because of that third ability, that's that's the headliner for me. Interesting. Now the, the static ability is great. Don't get me wrong. It's hell. It's amazing. The problem it's what puts is this that card you can't use. You can only use that once. Really, that's the problem. Well, I mean that that is yes, that is my observation exactly. But my point was is it leaves behind a lingering threat. It does. It does. And if you can maneuver yourself in, in many matchups such that. The you know just plussing this thing becomes a ticking time bomb, <laughs> and the explosion is you drawing another card. I guess, but the point is, is that you get the lingering value. Yeah, I guess. I guess for me, what that means then is that huh, I, I don't know. I think what this, this I think uh, my estimation of this card has gone slightly down over the course of the conversation. I was okay. extremely bullish on it before we started the podcast, and um, now I'm not sure. I think the awesome part of this card is the fact that it is disruptive and replaces itself. Your opponent can't just ignore it. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and I know that's that's a pretty low bar for but, a card but, in okay. Vintage, right? Well, let me ask you something simple. Let me ask you very, something very simple then. Suppose this just said the first ability and okay. also said when this comes into play, draw a card. Um, it's, I mean, it's obviously superior, and I'd be considering it, it at that point. It is, yeah. but that's, if, if that really, if the replacement is really what puts it over the top for you, then it's... I want you to evaluate that because I want to. I'm trying to to really slice this closely, right? Well, I mean, fit, it's I'm, it's it's not just the replacement though, because you, you can't decouple the replacement from, from the, the bounce. bounce. Sure, right. Sure, That's sure. one ability. Okay, so, so but just play play around with that thought experiment for the moment. Suppose okay. it was a one white blue enchantment that said the first line and then said when this comes into play, draw a card. Is that playable? I think it probably is playable. I think probably. it's a sideboard card for. For yeah, control for like decks. control mirrors. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Does that it's, that 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 gets at what I really wanted to get at? Obviously, okay. this is better than that. I think, although being a planeswalker makes it more vulnerable in some ways. Um. Than the the hypothetical enchantment version. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's worth pointing out that that I mean that's that's a tautology because the primary threats to this card are pyroblast and creatures, and as an enchantment, it would only have one of those threats. But it's going to get pyroblasted more than it's going to get attacked. I think. So, um, this card is, you, you would think that card is play, is, is probably a sideboard card. Yeah. I am, I'm now a little bearish on this card. I was really <laughs> bullish that I'm a, I'm a little bearish. I mean, I think it's immensely disruptive, but if you're, if we're going to start putting this in sideboards instead of main decks, geez, I don't know <laughs> if that really makes a difference. I, I, I think it probably is overly focused on blue. I honestly, honestly, I, I don't agree with that. I think it's part of the magic of this card is that it has a little bit of something for basically every matchup. Okay, less so for Dredge, of course. Yeah. But it's it's hard to have main deck cards for Dredge that aren't pretty narrow. But the even against Dredge, though, assuming your plan A has has worked, right? Maybe your plan A was Wasteland, for example. Maybe your plan A was just a combination of counter magic and plows. That's not a good plan A. But the point is, this can clean up against Dredge. This can clean up against Shops. This this means it, and it's just so flexible, right? It it has something to do in almost every matchup. You, you go up against Oath and you don't have a main deck fragmentize. Well, here you go. Now you've got an answer to a resolved Oath and or you know a, a resolved Inferno Titan or something that you okay bad example. You're probably not gonna be able to fight it on the way back down. But the point is, it has something to do in every matchup. Most vintage decks play to the board, and this card has a little bit something to say about all those decks. I don't think it's that hot against outcome, but if you're the sort of deck that's playing this, you're also the sort of deck that's already has a, a strong tactical advantage against outcome, and the the static ability here then really shines, right? 
all your pyroblasts are just, I'm going to counter one outcome this game, right? They become incredibly good. An outcome's bad at answering this card, full stop, right? They're going to repeal it, or that's it. And they can't repeal it on your end step, which they'd like to. <laughs> so I think it's the general utility of this card, combined with the fact that even when it's, it's bad, it's still just replacing itself and leaving a lingering disruptive threat. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I don't think it's a world breaker. I don't think it's a three or a four of like Dak Faden is, but I think it's a nice, flexible, better in some matches kind of card when in a deck that's that's sometimes guilty of playing a main deck fragmentize or something, right? Yeah. I think you can get away with playing this over a main deck frag. Okay, so let's go to the next question. Where does this go? I think it goes in some Jeskai builds, goes in land still maybe, and I think it goes in outcome. Don't forget it's a permanent top to bounce with outcome. It's a permanent that yeah. means your paradoxical outcome is going to resolve, and it's going to be for one more card. Fair enough. And it bounces Null Rod. All right. It bounces Null Rod, and it bounces Lavinia, and okay, you know so, Sphere Resistance, etc. So et make a prediction. I think it's I think it's going to be a slow burn. I think it's going to be less than the original Teferi was, which was obviously was on fire last summer, but then dwindled, of course. I think if you look at the popularity of Jeskai, and you take maybe a tenth of that, I think you're talking about a a, a three to six. I'm, so I'm going to say. You know, in the interest of going on the slow burn end, I'm going to say four. I'm going to take, I'm going to say two. Okay. Next up, Karn the Great Creator. Karn costs four mana with five loyalty. Legendary Planeswalker Karn. Activated abilities of artifacts your opponent's control can't be activated. Plus one, until your next turn, up to one target non-creature artifact becomes an artifact creature with power and toughness equal to its converted mana cost. Minus two, you may choose an artifact you own from outside the game or in exile, reveal that card and add it to your hand. Well, Steve, four mana uh, non-artifact cards have seen play thanks to the prior Karn (laughs) in Vintage, right? So we already have some precedent there. This one is a totally different animal, though, I would say. What do you think? Well, one of the obvious differences is that, so we have at least two versions of Planeswalker Karn. One mm-hmm. of the obvious differences is that one of them is just basically too pricey for contemporary vintage. The other one is priced just about right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And has seen a lot of play. In fact, was a contender for card of the year last year mm-hmm. because it actually saw the most amount of play, although it had a longer uh it had a longer runway for play than the the other finalist. Right. Um and that card served a very important strategic function in the format, which was to give PO a, a, a route to victory, a, a finisher, a strategic objective that could not be pyroblasted um, or easily flusterstormed or so on, or easily countered. Mm-hmm. And it gave them another way to win through board dominance, which PO does very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it saw play because of a particular niche that it identified and then successfully sat in for, for the duration, continuing to the present moment, of course. This Karn's potential is based or predicated on a very different strategic niche, right? Absolutely. This so is a th- totally different animal. It doesn't play the same roles at all. Right. So why don't you say what you see, see these, what roles does this play? Where the prior Karn could be counted on to create creatures, as you said, to finish the game and or generate card advantage and, and or selection, I suppose. This one is far more of a board presence for existing artifacts in play. Meaning his animation can either be used as removal on your opponent's zero converted mana cost artifacts or to animate something big you have. And big by this stretch means two to four mana, I would say. 
both of those things are dramatically different. So you can remove your opponent's moxen. Now, his static ability in Vintage already effectively removes your opponent's moxen in the form of shutting them off, right? Null rod style. Asymmetrical null rod style. So you could, if you're worried about your Karn getting removed, use him to continue to remove moxen. But that's probably not the primary use case. The primary use case here is the static ability combined with the minus two ability, which lets you go into your sideboard, as well as exile, to get... Uh, whatever you need ostensibly a tutor package right and there's one big card that everyone talks to with, with respect to this card across any format where it's legal and that is mycosynth lattice which turns all permanents into artifacts thereby rendering all of your opponent's permanents useless for the rest of the game how unbelievable <laughs> yeah but you have to believe that while that is definitely a, an available tactic in vintage the vintage workshop decks already come equipped with uh something of a tutorable selection in their sideboard today something like Grafdigger's Cage, Tormod's Crypt, right. uh, Keg, and... Crucible sometimes. Crucible, yeah, as well as Creatures, right, for the Mirror. So you have to believe that if this card saw play in Vintage, it would be really leaning on the Asymmetrical Null Rod to disrupt right. multiple matchups, combined with uh, just a tiny splash of tutorable, additional tutorable targets in the sideboard so that you can close a game with uh, Mycosynth Lattice, potentially, but really just get your already existing strong role players in the matchup that you're in. Yeah, this card basically does three things. It, it tutors out of your sideboard twice, mm-hmm. or something that's plowed or otherwise exiled, and it's an asymmetrical Null Rod. That's basically yep. what it does. And I think that's enormously powerful. I mean, Null Rod is one of the foundational cards in the format. You're talking about a card that basically has defined the format in a very fundamental way since it was printed in, in 1997. And Stony Silence, in many cases, has superseded it simply because it's harder to remove. Well, this is yet harder to remove in some sense, right? I mm-hmm. mean, Planeswalkers, especially a colorless Planeswalker, is extremely difficult to remove. The way in which you stop it is you counter it, which basically means force of will or a hard counter, which they're precious few beyond force, or you race them. But mm-hmm. unlike the other Karn, which is Karn P.O. Karn, which is what? What's the name of the subtitle of that one? That's Karn Scion of Urza. Yeah. Uh, unlike Kion Scion of Urza, this one is hard to race, right? You can actually just race Kion Scion of Karn Scion of Urza by killing your opponent directly with direct damage or whatever. That's very hard to do when you can't use any of your artifact acceleration. So, or <laughs> right. or you can't rush them with you know walking ballista ravager shenanigans. Well, this car- it it it's we should be very clear that the primary way to remove an artifact from play is by attacking it with creatures. And if this uh, card well, has come I into play, and, that. And I think minus- the primary the primary way to remove uh, uh, planeswalkers is with lightning bolts and pyroblasts. But yes, <laughs> I mean across magic, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's disingenuous to say it's hard to re- it's hard to race this card. I mean, it comes into play as a five and goes down to a three if you get your sideboard card. It's just a three loyalty planeswalker but, at that but point. But in vintage, a lot of- most most decks, you know, there are certainly decks that win through damage, but they they win through an avalanche of card advantage and. Um, then right. are able to deploy, you know, their their win conditions, and this card fundamentally prevents people from getting to step one. Yes, absolutely. Which is pretty un- unreal. So it has everything to do with the matchup in question, of course. But in but a it, lot of cases, this card will not be pressured through damage. Right. In the two matchups that matter the most, which is the shops matchup and the PO matchup, two of the most important matchups and two of the three most important magics matchups in vintage. Mm-hmm. This card is just a bomb. The only question well, I have is whether the four mana is fast enough. 
I would debate you on whether or not this card is really excellent against workshops because it's a tutor, but it's going to die, right? So it has everything to do with the quality of the card you're getting, irrespective of Karn remaining in play. Disagree with you. If you're if you play this against a workshop m- matchup, let's say you're playing workshops or a taxing deck, you're not going to actually tutor immediately, probably, unless you have like a worm coil engine in your sideboard and you want to go grab and you can play next mm-hmm. turn. You're probably going to tick it up to prevent them from being able to kill it, and then you can mount your defense while they're completely mm. stymied, and then use it to tutor. So, well, I agree that that's possible, but um, you've taken your whatever your four mana turn is to cast this Karn and tick it up to six. Meanwhile, they are attacking you with their workshop creatures, right? So, if you were already advantaged on the board and such that you know attacking and blocking favors you. Then sure, I think that that is a reasonable scenario. Well, you can also be slightly advantaged on the board. Like yeah. for example, let's say you're playing a shop mirror, right? And you have I don't know a revoker and a one-one ballista and a mistress factory, and your opponent has a ravager, a two-two ballista, and a factory. Okay, mm-hmm. um, or a steel. Let's say a steel overseer inside the factory. It's really hard for them to break through right there. If you just tick this up. They can get substantial damage in, but with this in play, they can't do a lot of shenanigans that would allow them just to break through that. So you can knot up the board a little bit, allow this to survive for one turn, and then use the tutor. Yeah, I think think that's certainly reasonable in certain cases. It's going to be tricky. It's going to be game-dependent. It's going to be play-draw-dependent, right? You're not going to be able to do what you just described on the draw in that matchup very much, but... Well, it why not? Still, I mean, t- is- turn turn one with workshop mocks in the workshop mirror. You can usually empty half your hand, even on the draw. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, you're right, but the, my point is, is in that scenario, your opponent has had a turn two, right? True. So maybe they've emptied their hand, and now they're doing something else, right? They're yeah. playing whatever they top deck. They're adding a counter to their ballista, right? They're attacking you. You're on the back foot. Yeah, you might just take all that damage on turn two, but the point is, uh, being on the draw is inherently disadvantageous in a tempo matchup like that. You know, they're they're wasting your workshop or whatever or your ancient tomb. Let's not forget that it's kind of hard to cast this card in that matchup, right? Yeah, you've got to have an ancient tomb double mox kind of draw, or have a turn where your ancient tomb uh, lives, something like that. So th- there's a reason why this th- the existing car in Cyanaverza didn't become standard in the workshop decks to begin with, right? Part of that is because it just was not that great in the mirror. People tried it, and it, it turned out that it was not good enough in the mirror to justify. And part of that's the cost. And that Karn actually directly affected the board, right? Karn Scion makes you a big old creature in the mirror, and it still isn't good enough. Um, I let me so, just I just ahead. put myself down as skeptical that this card is very good in the workshop mirror. I didn't Sometimes, say the workshop mirror. What well, I said was the scenario good you just workshops. laid out was yeah the scenario. Well, but my point was that I think it's good against workshops and good against PO. I think that's it's good against workshops if you're a PO deck. That's what I would think. Okay, I think it's yeah. better than that. I think it's I think it's just good against workshops. Period. Um, it's nice so, in that it, it you know it plays that null rod function that some decks tried to be the control wall against workshops, but that's actually a really rare role people try to play. Right? People aren't boarding in null rods and stony silence against shops that much. No, if you're PO, but, you simply can't. And if you're workshops, you do it kind of sometimes begrudgingly if you think it's the right place to be in the well, mirror. Well, a particular kind of workshop deck, right? Like right. The, the, the workshop decks that are more controlling that have like, which we've seen in the VSL, like Ensnaring Bridge and that kind of thing. They mm-hmm. want this all day long. Absolutely. This is great for an Ensnaring Bridge deck. Yes. It's unbelievable. 
<laughs> um, it's it's fantastic. Then you get almost a hard lock, right? Because and usually the way out of that was involving Ravager, Hangerback, and or Ballista. This card shuts all of that down, basically. Yeah. Um, the other thing I just wanted to point out is that, well, so let's switch to what kind of decks might be able to use this. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the other Karn is used in PO, so it could potentially be used in PO decks, right? Naturally. Um, um, certainly could be used in more controlling versions of workshops. But um, the other possible home is just any deck that has four ancient tombs um, <laughs> and artifact accelerations, which it obviously expands to different flavors of Eldrazi, right? Right. Because the Eldrazi decks um, can can get this out pretty quickly, especially I think the tribal Eldrazi decks, yeah, but potentially, potentially also white Eldrazi. And we've seen colorless colorless Eldrazi um, has done well in the last couple of months. It's appeared in um, top eights in in various tournaments, especially mm-hmm. which we didn't cover. But the first uh, premier vintage playoff qualifying tournament for next year, early next year's vintage championship online. I think the winning deck was actually an Eldrazi deck. Yep. Yeah, I agree that that's probably a likely home for a card like this. But uh, also, that deck already has kind of an advantage against workshops. I'm not sure. Does that deck need extra gas against outcome? Well, I think it'll deck, take it. Yeah, I mean, an asymmetric null rod is pretty good. It would like null rod anyway, right? And to well, have they, a, they play null rod anyway, yeah. right? And I mean, Travel Drowsy always has. So an asymmetric null rod, just to pull up the deck list, just so people know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, Poker Wizard, who Poker's Wizard. I think he's an, a well known. He or she is a well known online player. I don't know who it is, but won the the March 30th event. With Tribal Eldrazi, with four Endless One, four Revoker, four Reality Smasher, four Thought Not Seer, two Ballista, one Frexian Metamorph, two Dismember, and then Artifacts and Land. Um, the the sideboard had four four Null Rods. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so you could imagine that this deck playing with some number of Karn between main and side quite effectively. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like a good home for that deck. So we've talked about potentially playing this in workshops. We've talked about playing it in Outcome. We've talked about playing it in colorless and or tribal tribal Eldrazi. I don't think this card fits into any other archetypes very well. No, you need doesn't work in Xerox. Ex- you need lots of acceleration and or ancient tombs is mm-hmm. basically what you need. Yep, and I think any deck that would ostensibly be trying to I don't know mana drain into this or or something is the sort of deck that's already probably running null rod. Like I mean, a land still deck would be much happier to have Stony Silence than this. I think. Agreed. The only other thing I can think of is Grixis Thieves. What do you think about Thieves, right? All the accelerations occasionally mana drains and would prefer their null rods to be asymmetric? Well, so so I think part of the value that you get from this is these these tremendously stifle your opponent generating tempo or a long-term um, null rod plan, plus the marginal advantage of then tutoring out of your sideboard. Grixis Thieves could do that, but it probably gets a lot less value than than either PO or Eldrazi or Shops. So I don't mm-hmm. think this really musters in into um, into Grixis Thieves or, or Grixis-type control decks. But I wouldn't rule it out either. So how are we going to methodologically predict this? If we think it's going to see Scion of Urza-type play, that's a pretty big number. What What is that number, then? Give us a baseline. I, since the beginning of this year, Karn Scion, which has fallen off a bit, has only put up, let's see, two main deck performances, and then 
sideboard performances to the tune of uh, far far more sideboard performances as we as we discussed it looks like dozens of sideboard performances for Karn Scion I'll just I'll just I'll just throw out a number then I mean it's 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 going to be hard to peg because there's a wide a wide range but I will say I'll say 12 top 8 appearances I think that I think that that's I don't know I think that's a little bit high but there could be a, a lot of people really attracted to the explosive finish that this kind of provides in a deck that can explode like outcome, right? The prior Karn was good for the longer term, right? It was good for a threat that your Xerox opponents couldn't answer well. This one is more like if Xerox doesn't answer it next turn, the game is just over, right? If you can land a Mycosynth yeah. lattice on them. So that's It has that's a kind combo potential. Yeah. yeah, and that could be pretty ugly. You you could see a return to spell pierce as being a very common counter spell to fight that. Um, but twelve, wow, twelve is a is a large number. We've got complicating factors here. What with so many cards being in this set and the London Mulligan online, so I'm going to take the under. I'm going to say eight. Okay. I still think it'll see play. Twelve twelve feels like a little too much. Okay, fair enough. All right. Next up, Narset Parter of Veils. One UU. Legendary Planeswalker Narset with 5 loyalty. Static ability. Each opponent can't draw more than 1 card each turn. Minus 2. Look at the top 4 cards of your library. You may reveal a non-creature, non-land card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. This card is a haymaker, Steve. 3 mana Narset that has the same ability as Leovold. A reasonably high loyalty, unless <laughs> you minus her down to three, and yeah. she provides you with plus two card advantage if she lives. This is this is powerful stuff. Well, I in was, mono blue, I was very excited about tef- the Teferi we reviewed, but mm-hmm. what the, the obvious advantage this has over both in terms of disruptiveness over Leovold or Teferi is this doesn't require constrictive splashes. <laughs> right, you don't have to worry about whether you're playing white or green or black or some combination. This can go into basically any flavor of blue deck. You can play it in a rug deck. You can play it in a Esper deck. You can play it in a Grixis deck. I mean, it's mm-hmm. universalizable out of blue, which basically means it's universalizable in like 80% of vintage, excepting <laughs> like Shops, Eldrazi, and Dredge. Dredge, yeah. So the potential scope for this card, not in terms of application, but in terms of utilization, is so much larger than Teferi, which we were both bullish on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so just, I mean, look, each opponent can't draw more than one card each turn. It's devastating. If this is not dealt with, you will be boat raced. <laughs> There's no <laughs> other way to put it, right? I mean, it's just that simple. Yep. Yeah. And then the card advantage kicks in immediately. So it's, it's a bit like Karn where you can just immediately use it, right? So it yep. replaces itself instantaneously while being immensely disruptive to the opponent. Um, yeah, I don't really know I if I have agree much more. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the so I, my first thought now after I mean after agreeing with everything you said is the card is obviously playable. The question really is just how does the metagame adapt? How how much is it played? Do we have to make amends for this card being present? The for example, the um, outcome decks have evolved to play Caracas a lot to fight Lavinia. Yeah. Yes. Well, that doesn't help here, no, right? Not at all. And so. And this card is kind of hard to um, repeal, you know, four mana. It's not, out of the, it's not out of the question, of course, but it's hard to repeal. Is there, d- does Outcome need to adapt to playing some well, other additional new card? Well, the other or, thing is this can't be bolted either, unless they use the minus ability immediately. 
you know yeah, which is an interesting play pattern it makes Certainly. me wonder if that's going to happen in vintage right play narset pass to keep her out of bolt range i think this card in teferi plays an enormous premium now on playing with pyroblast i think like yeah. pyroblast after this set gets so much more important in the, in the format that means if you're <laughs> playing blue you basically need red yeah because you can't get these cards are so disruptive you need to have an answer and there's no other answer Right, yep. I mean, there's basically no other way to deal with it aside from just attacking into it. Um, and well, now Snapcaster does a decent job at finishing off a Narset, but de- not decent. great. No, I yeah. mean, with Mentor restricted, there just is not a reliable way to deal with it. So, um, I think this is going to see an enormous amount of play. I'm willing to go even higher than. So, my prediction so far, I peaked at twelve. Yeah, for Karn, and just for a reminder, we you, you predicted two. I predicted four for Teferi, but, but that predict- was I predicted twelve for the Arcanist too. Yeah, so but. The- the point is, is that that the Teferi, as you observed a moment ago, was far more narrow in its application, right. right? We were talking about a specific utility, a specific use case. This Narset is just, it's one of those cards that's just good in vintage. I right? said universalizable. So, yeah, yes, pretty much. I think that's it's, a good, it's a, that's a a good way to put it. But <laughs> I, I mean, to me, the range for this card is like 8 to 25. <laughs> so I, yeah. you just basically have to find a number in between there. Right. What do you think? I'll, you go first, and then I'll make my prediction. I think more than Teferi, so that's not well, saying that's much. The, we predicted yeah. <laughs> two and four, yep. Uh, we were very high on Dreadheart, Dreadhorde Arcanist, though. You predicted eight. Uh, sorry, you predicted 12. I predicted eight. And I feel like this card is comparable to that. It, it goes in more archetypes than the Arcanist, though, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the moment, it goes in Outcome. It, it goes yeah. in Xerox. It goes in different kinds of control decks like Grixis Thieves. And it's especially synergistic with Draw Sevens. Um, so... Boy, I've got to go higher than my Arcanist number, which was 8. I think I'm going to go higher than 12 even. I'm, I'm, pushing, I'm pushing 16 on Narset, I think. I'll take and, the over. I'll go 18. Yeah. I, I would not be surprised if, the, if there was uh, more than that. It just seems like it fits into everything is the problem. And it can be a sideboard card or a main deck card. So it's just, yeah. it's just everywhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, gosh, the more that I think about it, there were 26 Lavinias in uh, Ravnica Allegiance. And think about think about how constricting that is. You have to be playing white. Yeah. This has to exceed Lavinia. Well, it doesn't have to because Lavinia it can be used in to. like the, the Hate Bears decks and the Eldrazi decks and so yeah, on. Yeah, Lavinia was in Survival. Yeah. So there's a couple of use cases this doesn't have. But I think this has more broad use cases and in more popular decks than Lavinia, right? Lavinia was not a given in the Xerox decks over time. Um Gosh, I think I want to go higher. I think I think I want to take twenty. Actually, whatever yours is, I'm just going to go X plus two. So, all right, <laughs> I, well, I'll go twenty and twenty-two. Then, I mean, that's yeah, I feel comfortable with that. This Narset is the real deal, and I love the notion that you suggested of of play patterns where if this is boltable, you just don't activate her. Yeah, I think think that's really interesting. Yeah, I I just I, I mean I I will not be outbid on this card. <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you put that. That's great. All right, let's move on to Sahili Sublime Artificer. For one, is it, is it, Legendary Planeswalker Sahili, five loyalty. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create a 1-1 colorless servo artifact creature token. Minus two, target artifact you control becomes a copy of another target artifact or creature you control until the end of the turn, except it's an artifact in addition to its other types. God, how funny would this have been in the days of Control Slaver? I guess <laughs> wow, I no guess kidding. it's a legendary card, but still, you could still. 
<laughs> like, yeah, very back, synergistic with that deck. Yeah, I mean, you could you could like copy the um, mirror battle sphere and just like win off the spot. You know, <laughs> like yeah. I mean, all and kinds. It, and it means you don't need to do things like Crucible of Worlds and Darksteel Citadel to keep your right. slaver online. You just exactly. play spells. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. This card reminds me of the a card we I think it was Sahil Sai we reviewed Sai Master Thopterist, yeah yeah kind of similar his trigger condition absolutely his trigger condition was oh, playing an artifact so hers is more generous because it's yes. non creature spell and also but his creatures were better he gave you flying thopters um, yeah this is a, she, this she is will give you more servers yeah yeah so that's a trade off there right but also Sai yes. just being a creature is just so much easier to pick off. I mean, this basically being yeah. like an enchantment is just so hard to deal with. <laughs> but Sai was a bigger creature at 1-4. He could actually tussle in combat and survive, and was not boltable by himself. No, but this he Sahili, still removes some plow and balance and all that good stuff. Definitely. This Sahili has the same stats as Narset, starting 5, minus 2, so the same issues about Lightning Bolt apply. By the way, how this insane is... is even easier to cast. <laughs> how insane is balance after this set? I mean, um, God, it's pre- just... <laughs> So good. I mean, now <laughs> there that you had- are definitely more planeswalkers to punish. Yeah. About. Yeah. Oh my god! Imagine having Teferi and Narset in play and just casting Balance. Good game. <laughs> <laughs> good night. Um, you know, it's funny. We missed it in our Narset review. The synergy with Dak Faden. Oh god! So yeah. You can start that. Yeah. Activating you start, on your opponent immediately. Right. The old uh, four color Leo trick where you Dak your opponent. Anyway, back yeah. to Narset or back to Sahili. I mean. Um. So, I so guess, this card triggering off of non-creature spells means it, it's more generous than... I think than, it's just better than Psy. It just basically pushes Psy out, right? Well... This is colorless instead of artifact is the one drawback, right? I mean, that, that's... I'm not certain that Psy gets pushed out because the flying on the Thopters is somewhat relevant against workshops, and it's somewhat relevant against pressuring your opponent's planeswalkers. So there's a little bit there. But Psy has seen very little play in top eights. Yes, that is true. So, so that's a it's a distinction without much difference. So I agree with you. I think it, this is going to replace Psy for a lot of people. The other thing is this is just, you know, what this actually is, Kevin, is this is a mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a, a horizontal growth planeswalker. <laughs> I mean it yeah, it really it just is. generates permanence as you, you know, play spells. So mm-hmm. it's that's very difficult to deal with. Even if you remove this, they're still left with these creatures in play. And yep, the young pyromancer effect. Yeah, and you get you get to copy artifacts into pl- in play, so you might be able to get some value out of that. I'm trying to think about how you could maximize that value. Well, time vault is the answer. Oh god, for one. yes, <laughs> of course. Because whatever yeah. you copy is almost certainly, if you've done it correctly, untapped. Yeah. So she acts as a voltaic key for a time Twice. vault. Now, granted, yeah. yeah, yeah, she has to go down to do it, so you only get two of them. But theoretically, that's going to be good enough. Good point. It may not be, but in Vintage, it will usually be good enough. <laughs> Those two extra turns. Um, so, wh- where do you want this card, though? Like, there's artifact yeah, synergies, the so int- it's not a it's not a shoe uh, it's not a shoe in for uh, Xerox. Well, one thing that's interesting is that you can cast it for red, red one, or blue, blue one. Mm-hmm. So you don't actually have to have blue to be able to play this Planeswalker. True. So I mean, there aren't any mono red decks in Vintage, really. But there used to be the yeah. Solemn Simulacrum. Ubastax type deck. Yeah, I don't think this goes in the Blood Moon decks. No. It's just not right for those decks. And unfortunately, the trigger is such that you can't play it in like a uh, a Goblin's Hate Bear, Hate Red deck, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is going in blue decks. 
Yeah. But your point about the, the mana cost means that it, sometimes it will be cast off of basic island, basic mountain, and a uh, mox pearl. But God, this generates, <laughs> nice. a lo- this generates a lot of permanence fast. I mean, just think yeah. about it with a, just imagine it with a PO in, you know, with, in PO, with this in play. Cast PO, replay all your permanence. Cast PO, replay all your permanence. You basically have lethal creatures. Right. I mean, it's just, you've got every mox creates a 1 1. It's like empty yep. the Warrens. It's just, God, it's just enormous. <laughs> well, Psy had most of that effect as well. But the thing yeah. that this card gets you is against something like Shops, you can play her, and then your Force of Will on their next spell gets you a Servo as well. Yeah. And then you untap, and your your Preordain or your Shattering Spree on their thing gets you more Servos. I mean, that's that's where she really shines. You could play her in decks that only have three off-color Moxin, like Jeskai, for example, but still get a ton of servos because she's closer to Monastery Mentor in that respect. All right. I think, honestly, we're getting crowded at the three-mana blue deck Planeswalker spot, right? Are you going to play her over a Teferi or a Narset or a Dak Faden? That's the real trick in my book. Am I going to play her over a Dak? No. A Teferi? Probably not. Narset? Definitely not. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> so she's like she's, the third best three mana walker for the, the base blue decks right now. Yeah. If not for this set, she would be a top 10 walker. But because of this set, <laughs> right. she might not see any play at all. Yeah. It's really interesting. I I can't necessarily go zero on Sahili because... I will. I'll take th- the zero. There's something there. I'll take, the, take zero. the zero. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll take the, the over. I'll take the one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the one just for fun. I, somebody's going to try her. Yes, there's way more action to be had yeah. with Narset and way more action to be had with Teferi, I think. But this Sahili is still a vintage card, I think. Well, I'll t- you know, I don't want to go so zero. I don't want to go zero. I'll go one. I'll make you take the over on that. All right. I'll, I'll take two then. All right. We've reviewed so many cards like this over time, right? This is vintage playable. Will it see play? Probably not. Next up, Blast Zone. This is a land. Blast Zone enters the battlefield with a charge counter on it. One charge counter on it. It taps for colorless. It has two other abilities. XX tap. Put X charge counters on Blast Zone. Three tap. Sacrifice Blast Zone. Destroy each non-land permanent with converted mana cost equal to the number of charge counters on Blast Zone. This is kind of like Powder um, <laughs> closer to Ratchet Bomb yeah, on a land. there you go. I was going to say Powder Keg, but <laughs> Not it's <quite>. non-land. Yeah. <laughs> And so it's an activated ability. It comes in with one, so you can't blow up Moxon with this unless you do something sneaky to take the counter off. Right. Which <laughs> which really makes it far less useful in Vintage. Right. At far less useful. Far. Because this card came in with zero, it would be amazing. Yes. But it still has utility I, at like being think a land-based removal spell. I'd like to think they designed it that way to prevent people from doing that in Vintage. Um, I think it's more likely that they did it to prevent people from blowing up tokens across all yeah. of Magic. Yeah. I think that's more likely, and the effect in Vintage is probably a nice addition. Yeah, but you were saying. Um, this, so this, this does a fair uh, Ratchet Bomb impression, impersonation. It doesn't have the value that it does in Workshop, where you can tap your Workshop on turn one and play a Ratchet Bomb and then get your opponent's uh, you know, Walking Ballista or their Hangerback Walker or whatever. It doesn't have that value exactly, but the... Um, the opportunity cost of playing this card is also a lot lower than a a two mana artifact right this is just a land it's going to come in with one counter no matter what you do and it's going to sit there and produce mana as long as you need it to and then it's going to blow up all the ones and if you've had any time in the interim to put more counters on it at two mana per 
then it gets better and better, right? It's a land that blows up Null Rod, for example, yep. or Stony Silence, for yep. example. So there's immediately some attractive utility in a workshop deck to be able to finally and reliably remove those cards. Reliably might be overstating it, <laughs> but uh, but successfully yeah. remove those cards. I just want to underscore something. The rate at which this can add counters is is pretty unique. Oh, yeah. It can go fast. It can go from 0 to 100 fast. It can, this can blow up your Narset or your Dak Faden if you're not careful. Right. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, because, Ratchet Bomb, you can only add a counter at a time. One yeah, they could play time. this conceivably, put four mana into it, and it has three counters. They could blow up your Dak Faden Immediately, next right. Yeah. This is this makes this very different than both powder cake. It's it's less of an impression than like a warped mimicry. I mean, it <laughs> it, it really it kind of accelerates that effect. Um, yeah. And in the in the blast, it's <laughs> this should be called blast range instead of zone because the zone <laughs> is so large. I mean, you can really just de- destroy so many different things. So fundamentally, this is Workshop's basically first tool for destroying a null rod. For for the history of the format, Workshop's only answer to Null Rod has been to race it. Yeah. And also, we've always just assumed that, like, okay, you're playing the Workshop Mirror, your opponent has a um, a um, a moat in play, or a, um, what's that artifact moat I'm thinking of that we've seen, we just mentioned earlier? Ensnaring Ens- Ens- Bridge. Ensnaring Bridge. There's nothing you can yeah. do about it outside of overwhelming your opponent with a smokestack. Well, that's no longer the case. You mm-hmm. now have an answer, and you have inevitability. All you have to do is get to Blast Zone. And with Blast Zone and Crucible going together, you can start wiping out large swaths of your opponent's board. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, I think Blast Zone... This answer is Oath of Druids, too, for example. I don't know if this is going to see much play, if at all, but I know one thing. If you are a vintage uh, enthusiast and a vintage universalist and you want everything in vintage, buy this card. <laughs> guarantee yeah. you it will. it's a playable card. I don't know if it will see play, but guaranteed it's playable. Don't you agree? Yes. The short answer is yes. This is a vintage playable card. It's real good. It does a thing, a couple of things, as you put it, that no other card has ever done. It is synergistic immediately with one of the dominant archetypes in the format. And it's also, the opportunity cost is real low for it to see play, right? You could slot one of these into your mana base pretty easily. Yes, there is opportunity cost. It could be your fourth factory, for example. Um, and, th- and that's not nothing, but it's just... It's nice to have an effect that is so powerful and scales up so well and answers so many things that are difficult for a workshop deck to answer. So many haymakers. Agreed. Yeah. And we're, I mean, workshops is an incredibly popular archetype, as we know, dozens of top eights uh, year to date. If if even a fraction of those put one of these cards in their main deck or their sideboard, it's immediately going to go to 10 or 20 appearances. Yeah. <laughs> just like that. Right. Yep. Um, we've talked about a lot of cards that that we've described that way in the past. Some of them have been home runs and some of them have been strikeouts, but so this, the range on this card is, is zero to 30 in my book. <laughs> and, and that's real hard to peg. A lot of players are going to dismiss it because if you draw it in your opening hand, it's not very good at answering a deck fate. For example, it's not as good as a sorceress spyglass would have been probably. Agreed. And if you're in the workshop mirror, it's not as good at, at curtailing your opponent's offense as that first or second turn ratchet bomb is so it's not as good fast but that kind of goes without saying right it it comes in with one and it has an activation cost of three it's inherently not as good as something that costs two mana and the fact that it can't fight moxin means it's uh, the workshop decks aren't going to enjoy it against outcome for example but 
it does shore up a lot of longer term later game things that workshops currently fold to in a lot of cases. And I think it's a pretty good card for Landstill too. Oh, that's so, another good example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Landstill's obviously very down in the format right now, but this card, I think a lot of Landstill players would say, hey, right there, that's exactly what I wanted. So I feel like I need to go non-zero. I think it'll be slow to adopt. I think controlish workshops is a thing that doesn't really exist outside of the VSL right now. <laughs> but but I agree that its position is probably not optimal compared to where it's yeah. been. But yeah. this is a card that its mere existence will ch- change the possibilities, the kind of like horizon of possibilities in the format. And mm. so I think it's fundamentally important. And, and I yes. think it will nudge things in different directions. This card plus the new Karn could make for yes. a resurgence in control-based yes. workshops. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, prediction is difficult. You can't just look at range of workshop decks and say this is automatically a percentage of those because that's exactly what we're talking about. It's There's opportunity cost and people will be slow to adopt as they usually are. It's not powerful enough to immediately spawn a new archetype overnight. And we've got lots of broken new tools like Narset and <laughs> Teferi and other things too. So I think it's going to be a slow burn. I think it, we're going to see it. I think it's going to be very slow at first. Uh, I think the incidental use maybe in workshop sideboards and the occasional landstill. So, and landstill hasn't made a top eight in a long time. So I would say single digits. I'm going to go low single digits. I'm going to say three. I'll take the over. I'll go five. Okay. Reasonable. It'll be fun to see. Next up, return to nature. One G instant. Choose one of the following. Destroy target artifact. Destroy target enchantment exile target card from a graveyard what we've got here is supernaturalize yes naturalize need no longer apply right and in terms of vintage they added a very useful type of effect right the thing that naturalize was no good at was <laughs> i mean a number of things but the thing that naturalize could do that would make it relevant in more matchups is affect the graveyard unfortunately it's only a single card this could very easily have said remove you know target player's graveyard from the game and we'd be we'd be going nuts over it i think as it stands, one card is it's marginal at best. But the good news is is that this card now becomes relevant in significantly more matchups. See you there. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, I, here's what I would say. I think that that the ability to remove a, a card in graveyard from instant speed is interesting in a format where like Snapcaster sees so much play. Mm-hmm. So you get more flexibility, right? I mean, you can play this and you can like just get that incidental goodness, right? It also yep. dodges misstep. So I can see this being like a one of in like a rug deck where mm-hmm. you can main deck it and then just get that that value, right? Yeah, um that's true. I don't know if it's better than Ancient Grudge, probably not, but um it is interesting. It is it is worth at least considering. I would probably pick one up just to own yeah. it. Yeah. This is the kind of card that's very sensitive to subtle shifts in the metagame, right? Those rug decks exist. They you know their strength is in their metagame positioning. They have good matchups against shops if they load up on main deck ancient grudges right they have good matchups against the xerox decks because they can go wide etc etc this is the kind of card that could creep into a sideboard or as you said potentially a main deck if the metagame shifted such a way that this was this is where we needed to be if there was a depression in shops such that you didn't need the back half of ancient grudge so much and you got to steal some game ones for example from dredge by getting their their single dredger in the first turn and then following up with wasteland you know that's the kind of incidental advantage that this card could give you in a rug deck to allow you to steal game ones against dredge true and that's kind of that's kind of what you would expect and then every once in a while right you're the rug deck in against a xerox deck like jess guy 
And as you said, you got no target for this or no good one, off-color mocks. But there you have a, a key stack battle in the mid game that revolves around their Snapcaster Mage, and you get to counter their snap with this, effectively making it like a I don't know a remove soul kind of for that <laughs> Snapcaster Mage. That that could make all the difference. So the flexibility is there, and I don't think it's right in the metagame just now because I do think Ancient Grudge is still huge against the necessary against shops and outcome. But there could come a time. I'm going to go zero here. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think so too. I just think. Removing one card of a graveyard is so pinpoint, <laughs> you know, that it's just not, yeah. not quite good enough. If it removed Agreed. like five or more, then I think we're really talking. That's interesting. If you could remove Dredge's whole first uh, bizarre activation, yeah. you might have something. Survival. Or, or you could. Or, yeah. Yeah. Or, you're right. Survival. If you could get two or three, then yeah, you'd have a, a much outsized impact on survival getting two of their Venge Vines that, that pivotal turn. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Next up is Price of Betrayal. Black. Sorcery. Remove up to five counters from target artifact, creature, planeswalker, or opponent. Which so means you could, remove, 10, you could remove a poison counter, right? <laughs> that's right. Or energy. The, the real application is energy, I think. Okay. Even though that's not in this set. But they just wanted to add it to make it interesting, I think. Um, loyalty, also. in, in uh, Not loyalty, sorry. Uh, experience in EDH. Experience counters can be removed. Anyway. So nine times out of ten in Vintage, this is going to be Destroy Target Planeswalker, right? Very few Planeswalkers get above five loyalty in Vintage with reliability. And if they have, you might still emergency do it against Dak Faden, for example. This is also force your opponent to activate their Ravager or Ballista or Hangerback Walker. Well, not activate their Hangerback Walker, but you know what I mean in the case of the other two. Force them to use it, which is effectively the same as destroying one, right? It's the yeah. same result as if you'd nature's claimed it or something. Right. For one black, you can destroy a Ballista or, or Walker. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And removing counters from creatures in this format, not really a thing. Um, I mean, art, art, you know, obviously those two artifacts are creatures as well, but there's no non-artifact creature I can think of right now that gets counters in this format that's actively played. Oh, I'm sorry. There is one. <laughs> Manigorge or Hydra. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> actually, I was going to bring that up. But just removing all the counters no. from that is not really worth a card anyway. No, it's, it's not, not going to kill it, it either. Do much better. <laughs> yeah. Um, as it goes, I don't know. You could you could get over on a big Manigorge or Hydra with this plus Bolt, right? You Bolt it and your opponent is like, ha ha, you fool. <laughs> and then <laughs> you play this and remove all the counters. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty silly. I don't think this card is good enough. What? You know, it has all the marks of efficiency. But it plays a role kind of like Dreadbore in Vintage, yes. and that card is not made playable by being costing one less. What this card needs is it needs to be an instant. It, oh, it really sure. needs to be an instant. It, it really, really needs to be an instant more than it's it's begging <laughs> to be an instant because in an instant you could respond to a workshop activation, like when a player ravage moves everything from the ravager to the you know at that point. Yeah. You could then like kill a ballista, and so the ravager can't go to the ballista. Think that type of thing. You oh, know? very good point. Yes, being able to interact with that particular kind of it, uh, play on the workshops part is critical. Yeah, for one black, and then you would be able to use it against workshops as well as use it effectively against planeswalkers to just mm -hmm. wipe out a. Pl this is effectively one black destroy target planeswalker. Yeah, as such, I just don't think it survives well enough in any matchup. I'm not. If I had this in my sideboard, I wouldn't bring it in, even in a blue matchup where they had four Planeswalkers. I just don't think it's good enough. It doesn't hurt that all those Planeswalkers are blue, and so Pyroblast is better. Right. Yeah, I, mean, that's, I guess that's one of the cards, other problems. Is, but Yeah. In Vintage, so many of the Planeswalkers are blue that Pyroblast is just a higher equity card. 
All right, I'm going to go zero on price of betrayal. I will, I will as well. But we could theoretically get to a point where planeswalkers are so powerful and so dominant that mm-hmm. you need to have ways to remove it. And I, I think there are others at this efficiency level, but not many. So this that's would, a, this would become a, a consideration. Point. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Let's talk about Dovin's veto. White, blue, instant. This spell can't be countered. Counter target non-creature spell. Well, it's a we playable. We have a negate. It's a playable yeah. casting cost. Um, Absolutely. Lavinia's sitting there. Um, th- th- what this basically brings into focus is the issue of what is the value of being uncounterable, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have so many cards and effects that have uncounterability, and we know that Cavern of Souls is one of the best. I mean, it's a pivotal land in the format. We know that. Yeah. Um, but we already have counter spells that are effectively uncounterable, thanks to Flusterstorm. So, like, paying an ex- extra white, let alone extra mana, period, for a counterspell to get that ability, just real. I mean, think what this used to be priced at when Last Word was printed, right? Right. I mean, that shows... Four mana. Yeah. Now we're at basically two and a half, depending how you want to cost this. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think this is vintage playable, but I do think it brings into question, like, what is the value of this effect? That first sentence. Yeah. I would challenge you a bit on the vintage playability because there's one top eight appearance by Negate uh, this past March. Okay, and that was in a blue red based deck, right? So obviously, this, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't just guy; it was rug rug. But um, that suggests to me that Negate is a playable vintage card occasionally. But I'm thinking of your point a moment ago about price of betrayal. If Planeswalkers become increasingly relevant, then this card becomes, in, you know to some degree, increasingly relevant because it can counter a Planeswalker where a Flusterstorm cannot. And I'm not saying that that's a, a open and shut case, just that there's a reason I've already referred to Spell Pierce once in this show in terms of its increased utility. And I think non-creature is a fairly generous targeting requirement for a counterspell in Vintage. Fairly generous. So I think this is on the outside, knocking on the door, let's put it that way. Okay. I don't think the time is right, though, because part of the pressure in Vintage right now is just hyper-efficiency, right? And blue-white is, as you've already described, two and a half mana functionally in the format. There's The modern Jeskai deck does not really want a counterspell that has that restrictive of a mana cost. And the only deck that I could see this going in with any kind of regularity is Outcome. I, I was thinking like maybe like Landstill, because the reason Landstill would like this is because Landstill... Has a high density of counter magic, but oftentimes mm-hmm. it has counter magic that it can't shield because it's like yeah. it doesn't have the draw engine if the land still if the standstill isn't going. The other decks do. So like that type of deck that like needs a counter spell to defend itself, but ne- can't necessarily win every stack battle, this this is potentially very useful. Yeah, agreed. And given that Landstill is traditionally blue white based, it's the deck that's most likely to be able to put this on the stack with reliability. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point. Until land still becomes more of a thing, it's not going to influence our numbers that much, of course, but I agree with you there. I think if this is going to see play, it's going to be niche sideboard play in outcome, but honestly, what matchup do you even want that in, right? Yeah. The mirror? Isn't Lavinia just a superior card in the mirror? Yeah. And it's not truly uncounterable also. I mean... (laughs) That's right. Mind Break Trap exists. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's borderline. I mean, I'm, I'm... I won't be surprised if there's uh, some people try this in a sideboard, but I don't expect it to become standard. So I would, this is very similar to Sahili in the sense that I think this card's vintage playable 
I just don't think it's going to be played very much. I'm going to go zero. Yeah, I'm going to go zero as well, but keep your eye on Dovin's Veto. Next is Ral Storm Conduit. Two blue-red legendary planeswalker Ral with four loyalty. Whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell, Ral Storm Conduit deals one damage to target opponent or planeswalker. Plus two is scry one. Minus two is when you cast your next instant or sorcery spell this turn, copy that spell and you can choose new target. This is an interesting one, Steve. We've seen lots of variations of this kind of effect over time on either growing creatures or a few other cards that deal the damage, but this one's pretty generous in that once, whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery, you get one damage to your opponent or planeswalker. That's interesting, especially when you factor in things like Storm. Yeah. But um, the other effects of this card are just so measly scry one for a plus and then uh, you know a fork for your minus it's uh you're really leaning pretty heavily on this static ability this card really is well aptly named unlike price (laughs) of betrayal which makes no sense by the way um (laughs) this card really is a conduit for for damage to other planeswalkers with some marginal utility built into it um it's basically saying like you should be afraid of these planeswalkers like i was gonna wait for the end of the set review to make this observation but Mm-hmm. But this set holistically examined um, really raises some pretty profound questions about the role of Planeswalkers in Magic and in Vintage in particular. Effectively, mm-hmm. you've introduced these cards. This set in particular has basically these global enchantments that have powerfully disruptive effects and then do additional things on top of that. It's like, imagine if everything was like Sterling Grove, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> like all enchantments. That's like potentially transformative for the vintage format really that's a very good point uh, almost all these cards are they're kind of like two for ones exactly that's what i'm saying not they're like sterling growth not they're pure like, card advantage in every case yeah but the point is you're right every one of them does two things the turn it comes down that's huge and for a game that's basically built on two for ones you know it's mm-hmm. like what is the impact of that it's really unpredictable um i don't think this card is where it's at i don't think that you're going to be i think we're going to be looking I don't think you're going to be looking to disrupt your opponent by like picking off planeswalkers in this manner, but yeah. it does present that that opportunity. This I agree with you. This card makes storm cards doubly good, right? But it's not synergistic with any storm deck. Um, it makes tendrils slightly easier to kill with, but there's no way a tendrils deck is going to bother to play this card. I it, think the funniest thing is the interaction this has with Flusterstorm. <laughs> oh, God. What a nightmare. <laughs> it makes Flusterstorm yeah. into, like, Lava Axe well, sometimes. I think the most obvious application with this card is just Lightning Bolt. Because the, oh, sure. the Lightning Bolt doubles itself with the second ability. I guess the third ability, technically. Yeah, so your and Lightning Bolt does seven damage with this rally. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. If you If you do that and then, like, Snap Bolt, you're basically killing your opponent. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> Really, the snapcast. I'm with you. Yeah. It, l- let me put it another way. If someone cast this against me, I would probably go, "Oh no!" Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, your your life total is not long for this world with no. this card in play. No, not at but all. But the simple truth is, this Ral does not impact the board in a strong enough way. Yes, it could sort of finish off a planeswalker like a Narset that had been used twice. Right. You know, one loyalty Narset. Right. This Ral's going to take care of business. But you're investing a lot for a blue planeswalker that's not producing any card advantage. This is a card that does kind of sculpt nicely, though, into a big Snapcaster Bolt deck. Mm-hmm. Those don't really exist at the moment, but if you wanted to build one, you could certainly use it in that way. You could pressure yeah. your opponent very, very quickly. You don't even need Definitely. you don't even need Pyromancer anymore. Just use this as a win condition. 
you know, <laughs> have like two or three of this, a bunch of bolts and snapcasters, and you, you, you're going to win. It's, I think that's, it'd be very difficult to defend against that kind of deck, honestly. Interesting. Well, this does have a drawback of being a blue planeswalker, so it loses out to Pyroblast. And it also has the problem of if you cast it and resolve it and then plus it because you want to keep it alive. It's hard to cast it and then minus it because it's hard to have mana left for spells. So a lot of time you'd be incentivized to plus it to try and keep it alive, but you haven't impacted the board at all in that case. Your force of will does one damage if you're fighting back. Your mental misstep does one damage if you're fighting back. But all these other planeswalkers we've shown are cheaper and impact the board stronger the turn they come down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This Ral is a cool card, but I'm going to go zero. <sighs> yeah, I'm going to go zero as well. I think right. the I think the other two abilities are just so weak. They're so yeah. marginal. I do like yeah. that you get plus two with the scry, but it's so weak. And and <laughs> fork is not where we want to be in vintage ever. No, not at all. Okay. Next up, Tomic, Distinguished Advocist, I think is how that would be. I didn't realize that was a word. It is now. White White, legendary creature human advisor, flying. Lands on the battlefield and land cards in graveyards can't be the target of spells or abilities your opponents control. Your opponents can't play land cards from graveyards. And it's 2-3. By the way, I'm looking up advocate in the dictionary. It does not exist. There's obviously <laughs> yeah. advocate, advocate, but... Uh-huh. Yeah, they just made up a word. It's not the first and it won't be the last. So this card clearly, this is like a Graft Digger's Cage, but for different strategies, right? It's designed to hose Wasteland, Life from the Loam, Crucible right. of Worlds, and it incidentally hoses a few other things. Like, you you can't, like, Surgical Extraction your opponent's lands, for example. So obviously Wasteland is omnipresent in Vintage. Crucible of Worlds, less so. Life from the Loam, far less so. Is it worth it to hose your opponent's wastelands? Well, if you're playing Cavern of Souls... A white-white creature like this? You're playing Cavern of Souls into this. I think the answer is yes. (laughs) Yes! Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I see your point. So if you're the type of person who's playing a three-to-five color humans aggro deck and you don't want to get blown out by your opponent's wastelands, you could play a turn one in a one-mana creature and hope they don't waste you there and then turn two, yeah, cavern this out and now your lands are scot-free, basically. Basically, against workshops, it means they can't you can they can't blow up your mana base mm-hmm. and against another deck they can't you know snap off the cavern and then pick off all of your dudes with counter yeah. magic even if you get that ratio of hands it's like mostly mana but a few creatures you know they're going to stick mm-hmm. so also this has an interesting effect on uh, mistress factory right your opponent can't use targeted removal on mistress factory at all yep not that there's a deck in vintage it's going to pay white white and also have mistress factory though uh i guess land still could but they're not going um I think this card is, it's pretty effective at hosing Wasteland, but the the flip side is, do those humans-based decks need a creature like this that hoses specifically Wasteland, or wouldn't they just simply be better off playing something more devastating in a matchup like that, such as Thalia? I mean, yes, Thalia is going to be better almost all mm-hmm. the time. The question is whether this has a niche. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think this is one of those, another one of those Joden Grunt, you know, Samurai the Pale mm-hmm. Curtain spaces, where it has <laughs> obvious utility. It's not a dead card. It's got applications. It's 2-3, which is also nice. Um, it's flying, so it's evasion. Um, but is its utility great enough to justify inclusion in a powerful vintage deck? I, I don't know. What about other archetypes that play Thalia? Like Survival, 
sure. and White Eldrazi. Sure. I mean, you could certainly play this in White Eldrazi. All the, mm-hmm. I mean, it's white, white, which is a little bit out of what you want to play, but it's viable, I think. Yeah. It's an option. Yeah. If you were drawing up a White Eldrazi deck list and trying to figure out the metagame, it's certainly a card you would have on your list of considerations. Yeah, agreed. Well, Thalia herself has not made a lot of top eights this year. There's only a handful and in, in so far year to date. And that's actually kind of evenly split across Eldrazi and Hate Bears decks. I know that there are certain survival lists that play her, and those lists have soft mana bases, which is makes this kind of card attractive, right? This effect. But the mana cost is really bad for right. survival. Right. It's, depending on your hand, you really don't are disincentivized to fetch white white. Some lists are, have a hard time even producing white-white, in fact. <laughs> They're just not structured that way. But, to your point, this is on that list. As I agree with the way you put that. If you're building a deck, this is at least a consideration for your sideboard. And it's worth pointing out that this is a really aggressively costed card. This is a 2-mana two 2-3 two, flyer. For a deck like White Eldrazi, this card's actually really good. <laughs> it does a lot of what you want to do. It flies over Snapcasters and Young Pyromancers. Flies over opposing whatever in the, in the mirror match. Pressures Planeswalkers very effectively. It's a generous body for this effect. I'm inclined to think that this card won't see any play at the moment, just because, honestly, the presence of Thalia and the presence of Kataki, I think this card loses out to those. Yeah, I, I just so don't I'm, think... I'm going to go with zero. I don't want to frame it that way. Again, it, yes, there is a universe... There is a, a, a limit to the number of these kinds of creatures you can fit into a deck. But I don't. I don't think you can like. I think there are different levels of ap- application. You know, like Kataki plays a very powerful and important role, and is not going to be substituted by this. I think you're talking about cards at the margins where this could become like a one or two of. You know, addition, an additional ad- addition, but it's not going to replace a Thalia or replace a Kataki. Those are like foundational cards that are never going to be replaced by this. <laughs> That's why I say well, it's in the Jotun Grunt Samurai of the Pale Curtain space. You know, that kind of space where it's really. Kind of a marginal, potentially useful effect. Well, you're right about the marginal and potentially useful part, and I think that I feel like my method still derives the same answer, despite the difference from what you described. Think, you know, the Samurai of the Pale Curtain and Tsuyotin Grunt see no play, and I think that uh, it's for a similar reason. So I, I see your, your distinction there, and I think it is meaningful. You could play this in addition to Thali. You could play it in addition to Kataki. I don't think people will. I think yeah. that space is too precious. Okay. Are you zero as well? Um, I think so. Yeah. Okay. But hey, we've said it a number of times already. Keep an eye out for this one, right? It has a role to play, and that role is not nothing in vintage. Let's move on to Deliver Unto Evil. This one's fun. Pay attention. Two black sorcery. Choose up to four target cards in your graveyard. If you control a Bolas Planeswalker, return those cards to your hand. Otherwise, an opponent chooses two of them. Leave the chosen cards in your graveyard, put the rest in your hand, exile, deliver unto evil. This is basically factor fiction for your graveyard. You choose four. It's vintage, so you probably don't control a Bolas Planeswalker. If you do, more power to you. You get them all. If you don't, it's factor fiction at that point. Your opponent chooses two. Those stay in your graveyard. You get the other two. I love this, this card. card <laughs> this card is really cool. I mean, playable or not, regardless of our final you know, verdict, this card is awesome, and I'm glad it finally was printed. You know, a comparison to Factor Fiction uh, brings up some strong memories for me, right? Factor Fiction was a, just a, a dominant card for oh, years in God, vintage. Oh, yeah. It, it, it overhauled the format to the point where people talked about restriction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, this card is probably not long for that fate, but there's some 
some reverberations from the past and some something that tells me, hey, watch out for this because three mana for a two for one like this is quite nice. And what's coming out of your graveyard, it can be sculpted to be a very desirable effect. You could you could have conceivably have a graveyard with four cards in it that your opponent's going to not want you to have any of them. And so the, the the fact that you don't control the final decision is, I think, a little misleading in the sense that you control the, the contributing factors in a lot of cases. I don't like the fact that this exiles itself. I'd really like to be able to continue to deliver unto evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the main limitation with this card is what is in the graveyard, mm-hmm. right? Right? I mean, don't you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, the reason, you know, Factor Fiction obviously is playing off the, the, the top of the library. The, the trade-off, though, is that your graveyard might be better than the top of your library. Yeah, that's what I was trying to allude to, was that you have an, an element of control here. You know what the, the, the universe of possibilities is going to be with this in a way that you rarely or if ever did with Fact. Yeah. So, jeez. I guess, like, let's say your graveyard... Okay, let's just say you're playing Grixis, right? And you've dacked mm-hmm. twice. And your graveyard is Fetchland, Counterspell of some type, Counterspell of another type, another land, and, huh. I don't know, what should the last card be? A Preordain, right? Yeah, a Superfluous Mox, maybe. Yeah. Force of Will. There's probably a yeah. Force of Will or a mi- Yeah. Well, so you said Counterspell, yeah. yeah. So the most likely candidates are a Force and a Misstep, a couple of Fetches, an, an off-color Mox that you discarded to deck. And then maybe one other type of card, maybe an interactive card that you well, played. Let's just say oh, you said preordain or a yeah. lightning bolt. Yeah. So you deliver unto evil for force, misstep, preordain, and a mana source. Yeah. Mox or fetch seems pretty good, actually. I mean, it's I, it's three mana f- to get like a preordain and a land into your hand. I guess my instincts tell me that I would hold that deliver unto evil until I had four non mana source cards. Yeah. If I've got Dak Faden going, that that process won't take long. So if you could <laughs> right? pay black two to get like Bolt preordained into your hand, is it worth it? Yeah, I think it's borderline. Agreed. Yeah. Now we're running into the the big problem with Factor Fiction is that your opponent has the has asymmetrical information on you, right? They know what's in their hand. They know what their strategy is. They can give you the cards that are least good to get what what, what their plans are. Well, the other thing about Fact is that it was five cards, so you'd sometimes yeah. get like piles of four and one. <laughs> or piles of well, three and two, and all you wanted was the more cards, you know? Yeah. Fact could be an Ancestor Recall that this will never be. Exactly. Yeah. This is a mana cheaper, though. But the yeah. problem there, of course, is that it's difficult to put four desirable cards in your graveyard by turn two when you could really reliably be casting this. And Fact was also an instant, whereas this is not. Mm-hmm. So Naturally. It's funny. I wish... Um, I. I find myself wondering if at some point in design, this card cost four mana and it chose five cards. Huh. That that would have been my default way to template this card, right? Yeah. But to design it up front too. was a, a mirror to factor fiction. I think the problem is like, like probably players just didn't have that many cards in the graveyard. That's right. It's a lot harder to make use of in standard. I mean, yes, it's a late game card in standard, but we don't have that problem really in vintage. In vintage, we have the inverse problem, which is it's so easy to cast this so cheaply. <laughs> yep. It's a reliably a turn one or two card. You don't have a graveyard. You're going to go fetch land and that's it. Actually, you're not going to get anything. Let's choose up to four targets. If you have only three cards, you're going to get the worst one of them. Yeah. Your fetch land, right? That's a real yeah. bummer. It's a bummer indeed. Is there a way that you could abuse this in a ritual deck? Certainly. I mean, if you have Does, like Lotus Petal, Dark Ritual, Grim, you know, a tutor and like a blue spell in your graveyard, you know, or if you just like play the turn one draw seven and then play this. You could do some real damage. 
But, I mean, at that point, you just would rather tutor for Yawgmoth's will and do the enormous damage. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. This fav- uh, compares pretty unfavorably to Grim Tutor in those decks, doesn't it? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. It's an interesting space. It's an unfortunate space because the card is so cool. The art is cool on the card. Mm-hmm. The, um, the title is awesome. The effect is awesome. <laughs> I just don't think this is going to see any vintage play. It's, it, you know what it reminds me of is, what's the card that... Uh, there's a card at this casting cost that says, like, draw two cards, uh, scry four or something like that. Lose to are you are you talking about uh, read the bones where you scry and then draw? Yeah, that's what this reminds me of in terms of kind of like you get a little bit of an effect. Yeah, yeah. You know, now that you mention it, there are certain scenarios when I would want deliver unto evil more, but I think on, on average, I'm going to want read the bones or painful truths more than this. Right, read the bones and painful truth are just better yeah. at that mana cost. Yeah, agreed. All right, I'm going with zero on deliver unto evil. Me too. Next, Dovin, hand of control two. Azorius, Legendary Planeswalker Dovin, starting loyalty of five. Artifacts, instants, and sorceries your opponents cast cost one more to cast. Minus one until your next turn. Prevent all damage that would be dealt to and dealt by target permanent and opponent controls. So it's a sphere for your opponents, let's say symmetrical, for their instants, sorceries, and artifacts. And I have to admit, if I was to choose three and only three categories of cards... To, to apply a sphere yep. to in vintage, it would be instants and artifacts, and then either sorcery or planeswalker. I guess Agreed. for the last one, it's kind of a kind of a toss up there. Yeah. Sorcery is probably better. Agreed. But uh, I mean, this, it, so this this static ability is highly relevant. Yeah, the sorcery means that they can't play things like like shattering spree efficient. <laughs> you know, so like if you're playing wild Eldrazi, you could play this, right? I mean, this is another sphere effect. This is mm-hmm. basically Glowrider, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a pretty good Glowrider, too, because it won't affect you and slow you down. And Glowrider has seen lots of play in Wild Eldrazi. Now, granted, you can cast Glowrider with Cavern of Souls. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But but this is harder to deal with than Glowrider, in some yeah, sense. Glow, Glowrider has made two top eights this year in Eldrazi, and it's been good for a couple of top eights in, in 2018 and 17 before that. So it's not a it's not a dominant card, but it's consistent. Yeah, I mean, you can play this, and then you can tick it down to protect yourself from whatever their biggest threat is. Which, I mean, imagine if it was something like, I don't know, Blightsteel Colossus? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the more you say that, this is actually kind of a kind of a beating against other uh, creature-based decks, right? If you play turn one Thalia, oh, this makes, that makes this card more expensive. So, synergy with Thalia, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Glowrider's but better you, with Thalia. Yeah, but if you if you can do it, if you can play turn one Thalia and then turn two Dovin against like workshops, they're probably not going to have more than one threat that you need to worry about on that turn, right? Yeah, you just you just put a bubble around there. Yeah, yeah, you put a bubble around their uh, Ravager or something, and then Thalia holds the fort, and then you play a Thought Not Seer. Yeah, the fact that this turns off damage for a whole turn is kind of neat. Now it's interesting. It's worth saying it makes it hard to attack through though, because it means their blocker never dies to your attacker it doesn't yeah, deal or receive the assumption damage. is that you have to then um mount a defense once you get it in play right i mean at some point you'll start deploying creatures not just yeah. oppressing them with spheres <laughs> yeah 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 that's interesting when i first saw this card obviously it it struck me as more of a, a blue based control kind of card but it has real interesting overlap in white based eldrazi i like that i don't and obviously this is this is yet another card that outcome just can't win through right yep Taxing the artifacts and the outcome itself and all their con- all their control cards. Yeah, it's just they have to bounce it. I mean, sphere effects and- are very powerful in vintage. 
and there's you know, only a limited really number of them. It they cost three or less. I mean, literally, we can count on almost one hand all of them in vintage. Yeah. Thalia, yeah. Glowrider, Trinisphere, Sphere of Resistance, Thorn of Amethyst. And I miss anything? The C play. Not not that C play. Is there yeah. any that cost three or less that I missed that don't C play? Um, damping Sphere, I think, counts. No, but it doesn't that really doesn't actually inc- that doesn't increase the spell of co- cost of spells. Oh well, it oh, does. It, it in does second. after the first one. Yeah, after yeah, the first one. I was gonna say after the. So first. I think it's on that list, but there's a yeah. reason it doesn't see much play. Uh, no, but you make a fair point. Yeah, it's a short list, and we keep restricting them too. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, there's lodestone golem, of course, but that that's costs four ab- ab- yeah. above the mana cost you said. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's it's highly relevant that this is a, another three mana sphere, and yes, it has a, a not universal um, sphering application, but it's asymmetrical. Yes. And it hits the things yes. you want to hit. It's your vintage. opponent. I think yeah. that's what puts this over the edge, is that it's so asymmetrical. Also, you could play this with Glowrider and Thalia. It's not mutually exclusive. <laughs> Absolutely, you could. You could play this in Outcome, in the mirror. Jesus. And your opponent is host, and you're not. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, Lavinia uh, plays that role pretty well as well. A- as do the other cards we just talked about, Teferi and yeah. Narset. Again, it's- if, if Narset and Teferi didn't exist, this card's stature would be so much larger. <laughs> <laughs> seriously yeah, agreed as it stands it's about the seventh best planeswalker yeah, i know in the set not just in, <laughs> yeah, in this set yeah. um it's pretty funny i think it's it's worth reiterating what you said about the effect this has on blightsteel colossus right yeah. this just shuts the door for five turns on blightsteel <laughs> no. colossus that's pretty funny <laughs> and that's pretty relevant too for a deck like white eldrazi right how many games has blightsteel colossus specifically stolen against white eldrazi Right? I mean, even in it, the innumerable games. Yeah, even at like the more obvious, like your opponent has a Snapcaster Mage, it effectively blunts the Snapcaster by two to one. You know, mm-hmm. like you're taking down one instead of two a turn. So yeah, true. It's worth it. Well, so yeah, this is this I glut of no three mana relevant planeswalkers. To, to to anticipate and preempt your question, I have no way of of predicting what, <laughs> how many how much play this will see. I, you I know, mean, it's funny if you hadn't brought up the Glowrider comparison, I might have looked right past that. I was prepared to say zero because all the other blue Planeswalkers in this set are so potent. But the Glowrider comparison is really interesting. I mean... It is Glowrider. It's asymmetric Glowrider. <laughs> basically. So, I'm... This just... It's like Sahili and Dovin's Veto. This is absolutely vintage playable. It's it's actually really good in Outcome and in the Mirror, but we've already interviewed two to three other planeswalkers that are similarly good in the mirror i don't yeah. know if this supersedes anything there definitely not narset um and we've got another one after this to talk about so i'm really kind of torn yes this is absolutely playable i i don't think it'll make a top eight by the time we're looking at the results yeah and if I, it does I'm, it'll be either an outcome or in uh eldrazi i think i did want to point out that this actually is not synergistic with lavinia because all of their <laughs> You're yeah. right. Choose this or Lavinia, not both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't play Dovin if you've got Lavinia in play. You're opening the floodgates All their again. zero mana spells are now castable. <laughs> yeah. So Interesting. I'm glad you pointed that out. So it's this or Lavinia for Paradoxical Outcome Mirrors. Would you play this in Xerox? Would you bring this in over, instead of Lavinia against Outcome in Xerox? I don't think it, I don't think you can justify this over Lavinia. I think it depends on how your deck is built. Okay. I do. I mean, like, again, this is better if you want to play balance. Okay. I'm it with also you there. is not vulnerable to Caracas. Um, you know, that's very reasonable, given how omnipresent Caracas is now. Very reasonable. I feel like Lavinia didn't quite live up to the hype. 
it's kind of I don't of know, fade. 26 appearances suggests otherwise. <laughs> but it's kind of it kind of burst on the scene and then faded a little bit. I think it's more along the lines of it just became an accepted factor very fast. I think the VSL contributed to that a little bit too, where Randy Randy was so high on Lavinia yeah. that it became just such this omnipresent thing and then a whole bunch of people played it in the first two weeks after yeah. it was legal. I think it just quickly became accepted yeah. and outcome adapted quickly with Caracas now to the point where there's one main deck and one sideboard Caracas in a lot of cases. I mean, I did play that first week Lavinia was available, but it's it, I feel <laughs> yeah. like it's rate of like top eights has, has like gone down to like one or two decks in per top eight now, mm. as opposed to well, like, you know, may, maybe you're right. Maybe that's anyway. <laughs> I don't think one or two per top eight is a, is a it's hard to oversell that. True. <laughs> that's true. A, that's a format staple. Yeah, right? this card is probably not going to reach that level. So not at all. No. I'm inclined to go zero, but I'm not going to be surprised. There's, you know, an asymmetrical sphere is so attractive that it it pales in comparison to some of the other bombastic effects in this set, but somebody yeah. will try it. Yeah, I think the problem is that this card is, even though this card might actually be quite decent, I think it's just going to be hugely overshadowed by the yes. other Planeswalkers in this set. So I don't think it's yes. going to get a lot of experimental space because there's just so much to experiment with. So... <laughs> I and it's not it. Sorry, it's not a direct comparison, but we could see a similar effect to what we saw with uh, Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time. I think someone's going to top eight with this. So I'm going to say one. I just think there's it's, right. it. It could be in the sideboard of a White Eldrazi deck. Could be somewhere else. Yeah, it's a pretty handy uh, sideboard card. Oh, get it, handy. Um, yeah, and uh, <laughs> it has a lot of applications, right? Because you would bring this in against Xerox, would you not? I would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Xerox is where taxing effects are at their maximum impact. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the fact that I'm comparing this so much to Lavinia should suggest to me that zero is the wrong number. (laughs) If I'm saying a card competes with Lavinia so much, and Lavinia was a 26, then maybe zero is just flat out wrong. Okay, so there's no two ways about the fact that this costs three mana. You're going to lose a game to outcome when you wait until three to play this, right? So there's that. Lavinia is a creature, which means she's inherently a little more fragile. This Dovin can survive Lightning Bolt. I mean, can avoid Lightning Bolt, even for a prolonged period. You could play it minus it, and it still can't be bolted. So there's some advantage there, and you're avoiding Caracas, as you said. So there's there's situationally better and situationally worse than Lavinia. Yeah, the more I say that suggests this has got to be it's got to be playable. I'm just wondering if there's so much pressure on the format that I think there's a there's a strong psychological effect in people's their encapsulation of Lavinia as its fighting outcome, and they will be resistant to increasing the mana cost of a spell for that role, right? Yeah. I know I am, even though I know this has a a very detrimental effect on them, and it's actually going to be a superior card. Oh, you know what? What? Maybe, maybe the place that this lives is in the Combal space. Interesting. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I mean, you can... There's your three mana card. You can also play this so quickly. I mean, this is that's one of the other things that, that's that's great about this. Oh, good point. It's I mean, very it's easy Mox, to cast. Land, you're there. Yeah, bam. You play this off Mana Crypt in the yeah. mirror, which you can't do with either of those other cards. Yeah, you know what? You're right. Let me look at sideboard play for Combal in recent history and see what we see. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Paradoxical outcome. Yep. Combal is seed play. All the sideboard appearances for Combal are in this are in outcome, and year to date there have been five of them. There you go. There's your there's your reference point. All right, I'm off of zero on this. I'm going to go two. Okay, I'll sit at one. I'm comfortable there. Okay, I'm Again, glad I thought I, of combo though. I think that's a better comparison. I think this in card terms is of- just great. I just I just don't think that the, the 
the experimental space is is like the oxygen is just sucked up by these other cards. <laughs> I mean, between Teferi and Narset and Karn and, you know, like, like yeah. it's hard to get amped up about this. You know, it's like... <laughs> I'm with you. This card, I mean, there's a lot to say here, but this card could have been a rare in another set. It's only an uncommon here. And we would be over the moon about this card yes. if it had come out two or three sets ago. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So interesting. All right, but we must move on. We must move on and talk about Ashiok, Dream Render. Ashiok costs one Demir Demir, Legendary Planeswalker Ashiok, five loyalty. Spells and abilities your opponent's control can't cause their controller to search their library. Minus one, target player puts the top four cards of their library in their graveyard, then exile each opponent's graveyard. Let, let me make a controversial statement. This right. is a top five Planeswalker in the set. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> After everything we've just been through, yes. th- I think that is that requires some justification. Now, it's so a please funny go on. comment. It's a funny comment because like that w- that doesn't seem like a very um laudatory remark, but after <laughs> everything we've been through, it's it is it is quite complimentary. I think that th- so I think the reason that the the last card we reviewed is not actually comparable to Combo's cuz Combo serves as a win condition. I think what matters oh, is like totally fair. So when you look at these planeswalkers, they basically have several components. They're disruptive, their card advantage, or their win condition. Sometimes they're all three, right? Like Jason mm-hmm. the Mind Sculptor. Mm-hmm. Um, this card is is basically um, a win condition as well as mm-hmm. incredibly disruptive. I think what makes this card interesting is I think it's really easy to, oh, to underestimate how effective, how how quickly. You can just wipe an opponent out with with the minus one ability. I think that, really, yeah, I do. I think that basically, if you can get this down, let's just assume you get this down on turn one because you got a little lucky. Okay, okay. You, like opponents' fetch lands are just turned off. If you depended on a hand that had like a pair of fetch lands and a mox, you're done. And what happens <laughs> is your opponent, you, you, if you get started, if you get started getting milled, your top twenty cards could be gone. And that could be the mana that you desperately need to draw, Kevin. Mm. Well, it's certainly possible, but we've we it's already well established that milling someone to remove a particular effect from their deck is just random, right? It's yeah, and you can't get is. twenty because if you get tw- the twentieth card, then Ashiok has left play. That, well, that's what I mean is that you know basically yeah. the first sixteen. But and, yeah, and, so yeah, occasionally you you could have that devastating effect. Sure. Yeah. Um. Also, also, if they play any spells whatsoever, those are exiled. So it's not it's, oh, yeah. it's exile with that. So each activation is likely to exile more than four cards. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, if your opponent is trying to preordain out of the problem, absolutely. So, so you can get into a position where you're like you're basically wiping your opponent out of win conditions like surprisingly quickly. Um, I think this card is really disruptive. I really do. I think the like I, I, like let's let's go through the disruptive the disruptions that. The pl- blue planeswalkers we've seen. Let's just look at what do- what they do. Okay, like let's mm-hmm. just decontextualize them. They tax your opponent's mana. They prevent your opponent from playing spells in your turn, mm-hmm. and they prevent your opponent from drawing cards. This prevents mm-hmm. your opponent from searching their spells and abilities. Can't cause their can't allow them to search. So they can't yeah. search. Basically, they can't search. I think it's very disruptive, honestly, um, because of the combination of tutors in the format and fetch land. And I mean, just think about like little tutors like. Merchant Scroll or mm-hmm. Mystical Tutor, you know, like those are just done um, with this <laughs> in play. I mean, I I just think that this card, I think it's I think it's more disruptive than we we think. The, all of the 
all of the effects, Kevin, that have existed that I can think of or are within my store of memory that have that effect are basically like white, are non-white enchantments or creatures. Like suppression field, um, uh, what's the one, what's the white creature? There's a white creature, right? That prevents your opponent from searching. Oh yeah, lean and arbiter. Lean and arbiter, that kind of effect. We've never seen this in blue. Except there well, was one. There was, there a, was a four mana one, but yeah, yeah. I was gonna say there's a. I think there was a blue black card that like milled your opponent twenty if they tried to do it. Um, <laughs> there's search um, their library. I forget what it was called. Um, I I forget the card you're talking about as yeah. well, but it's not not particularly important. It hasn't been this cheap in blue. That's for certain. Yeah, I mean, again, is there anything in blue that says your opponent can't search their library? Just flat yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, the original, flat out, the card that says that is, uh, I think it's players can't search for the library, but that's Mindlock Orb. Yeah, that's but that's an artifact more than it is a blue card. Technically, it's blue, yeah. <laughs> You're right. It's been, and it's symmetrical as well. Yeah. So the asymmetry of this card is important. I also think that the, the way this attacks the graveyard is not trivial. I mean, this thing is immensely powerful against Dredge. It's a little on the slow side, but like the fact that you can just like repeatedly nuke their graveyard is very good. All you need to do is buy a little bit of time. You get this down. It basically has dredge locked out in terms of the graveyard. Yeah, absolutely. It's a nice incidental hate against dredge. And I mean, in a format where things like Yogmoss will treasure cruise dig through time matter, this repeated usage basically turns off those effects. You know, snapcaster, you're not going to get a lot of value out of snapcaster. If your opponent's doing this to you, mm-hmm. I just think this card, I think you're going to be surprised. I think this card is going to be better than everyone thinks. Interesting. I'm I am surprised to hear you say that. Um, I just can't shake the notion that this isn't providing immediate card advantage, and the fact that it comes down on three means that your opponent has absolutely had time to activate their first fetch land well, and maybe a, their second. It is a two a two turn spell. I mean, a turn two spell. Yeah. So there there'll be times when they haven't though, you know, and the rest of the fetch lands are locked out. Yeah. So that's true. Yeah. I just can't shake the notion that all these other that I mean, you, this may be a top five planeswalker, but if that's so, it's it's number five, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm not going to play this over Narset or Dovin or Sahili. Or I would Teferi. play this over Sahili. Uh, I agree on the other three. Yeah, I don't know what okay. which I one mean, was Teferi. We talked about Narset, Dovin, and <laughs> yeah, Teferi. Yes, Teferi, Teferi is, is the first yeah. one. Yeah, I agree with that. But I but also, I mean, I think this does actually prov- provide an, another route to victory. I mean, I really think that like. I I don't think it's I think the decking potential of this card is easy to overestimate. But if you get into an interactive game, Kevin, and mm-hmm. you nuke your opponent's graveyard of ten cards, or let's just say like they have five cards in their graveyard, you bin four, that's nine. Yep. Then you allow a little bit more of the game to progress. You know, they get a couple more cards, you bin four more, there's seven. You do that a couple more times, your your opponent's gonna deck. <laughs> I'm serious. Well, you- you more so than most players have been involved in a lot of like Xerox mirrors that go down to just having Sub a few cards, cards left in your library. Yeah. yeah. So I think you're more sensitive than most to this potentiality. And I agree that in certain cases, in certain of those games from the past, if Ashiok had been involved, that would definitely have caused the Ashiok's controller to win. So I'm sensitive to that. I feel like there's obviously a counteracting effect of you're, you could play Ashiok and I could play Dak Faden and yes, I'm going to lose a bunch of cards, but the fact that I've got selection and access to more cards uh, is just going to allow me to win. I think Dak Faden cures a lot of ills in this kind of uh, matchup. That's true, that's true, but I also think that like against the Xerox deck, 
like your opponent is going to be going through their library so quickly that you, mm-hmm. if you just a couple activations of this, they're really going to have an, a, a, a sub 20 card library very quick, very quick. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you hit the right combination, you could really cripple your opponent. I'm serious. That's true. Like they, there's plenty of, you can yeah, take I, the I, win so conditions to, and they're draw key to draw restate, spells. Yeah. To restate, I, there are, I think probably a number of players are very skeptical about what you're saying right now, but the simple truth is, is that many Xerox mirrors revolve around players jockeying for position, trying to deny their opponent card advantage and trying to find and resolve a critical spell. And to your point, yes. 16 cards is not a whole library, but taken at opportune moments, uh, milling their, um, and, and exiling their monastery mentor, for example, cuts off a whole line of play. Exactly. Cuts off a, a whole, exactly. a whole branch of their possibilities, right? The, the important point to note is that, that the Xerox archetype has been hammered by restrictions. And if mm-hmm. you can hit half those restricted cards, especially the mentor, mm-hmm. you've completely changed the, the unfolding dynamic of the game. Yeah. I, I think actually, if this card sits in play for five turns and you get four activations out of it, I think the average number of cards you're going to be hitting per game removing with this effect is over 30, like probably 32 minimum, like on oh, yeah. average, average, the average, obviously. I think that's reasonable. Sure. So that means your deck, you're like milling your opponents half their deck while you're also <laughs> disrupting them. Again, this is, this goes back to my comment about holistic. This is doing two things. It's disrupting your opponent potentially enormously, but more likely at the margins and mm-hmm and exiling cards from their deck, and just wiping out, nuking their library at the same time. I mean, it really does three things, right? You're, you're taking <laughs> yeah. cards out of their library, you're nuking their graveyard, and you're preventing them from searching. And I think those things are actually incredibly synergistic. When we come back for our, set, for our report card, I, I feel like I'm going to get a lot of credit on this. So <laughs> Nice. Well, I'm glad you feel so good about it. Uh, there's also incidental hate for Snapcaster Mages as well. Yeah. Well, all right, let's put your money where your mouth is then. What do you think? I think we're looking at a half dozen. I'm going to say five. All right. Well, I hate to say it. I, I remain unconvinced. Fair um, enough. That's good. I uh, Before I give my vote, do you think this is a sideboard card? Yes. Okay. I think it's going to be mostly uh, so, in sideboards. Yeah. I think it has a little bit more potential as a sideboard card just because, well, I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't undermine anything you just said, but... Um, it's some nice incidental hate for Dredge as well, right? It's yes. not your primary plan, but it's a nice you don't need sixth it to be. or seventh or eighth yeah. card. You just right? need to survive and then get this down <laughs> and then you, you, it takes right. over. And um, this also plays well with existing common strategies against Dredge like Grafter's Cage, right? Yep. It complements Cage quite well. Nicely, very nicely. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's also better than against survival. It's like the best possible thing against survival. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point too. So if yours is the sort of deck, yeah, that's that's planning to cage them on one and then try and keep ride that cage to victory, Ashiok supports that plan and those matchups very well. I mean, Ashiok is basically two cards against Dredge. Remember, if if you really need, um, like, let's say that the the co- rule of thumb now is that you need three anti Dredge cards during the course of a post board game. Yeah, this actually completely short circuits that. All you need is so. well, all you need is then two. You need the first thing, and then you just need this because it's iterative. So in other words, oh, instead of having instead of to require instead of requiring like you know a cage, a, gra- a, a crypt, and a, a ravenous trap, or a, a cage, a ley line, and a and a crypt, all you need is like one of those things plus this. Mm, interesting. I think it compares pretty well to Rest in Peace in that case. I agree. I think it's very similar to Rest in Peace, but I think it's strategically stronger. Yeah, and certainly applicable in more matchups. Yes. Granted. Okay. Well, you, you know, you make an interesting point, and. Uh, I'm not entirely there with you, but 
a lot of my position is just driven by this complete deluge of three mana <laughs> walkers in this set. And so I think my perspective might be a little bit uh, stymied. I'm going to go with zero on Ashiok, and if it turns out that you were correct at report card time, then I, I welcome it. <laughs> All right. Next up is God Pharaoh's Statue. It's a legendary artifact for six mana. Spells your opponent's cast cost two colorless more to cast. At the beginning of your end step, each opponent loses one life. That's it. It's a big old asymmetric sphere of resistance times two for your opponent. It's it's basically the ultimate stacks sphere. <laughs> right. The ultimate. It's like the perfect workshop control card. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a, it's a it's a better than Trinisphere in that it actually makes everything cost two more. Mm-hmm. It's asymmetric. It's asymmetrical. Yeah. yeah. It's asymmetric and it's a has a built-in win condition. Yeah. It's pretty awesome when you put it like that. But that's what you should get in Vintage for six mana. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. It would only be better if it said your opponent can't draw more than one card each turn. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, I mean, as we've previously discussed, Control Workshops is not really an active part of the format at the moment, even though it's overrepresented in the VSL for the last couple of seasons. Do you think you can play this card in straight-up stacks, or do you really need to be something like a, I don't know, a Metalworker deck? And it's are you talking about say. just having one of these? Maybe think, access to one of them in the sideboard thanks to the new Karn? This, yeah, I think what's most annoying about this card is that it's legendary, so you can't, like, ramp them, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, well, I, while that's true, I would posit that the first one is going to be good enough <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, you could still play multiple. But what it means is that you're not going to be playing a deck with, like, four or three, likely. You're going to be playing one or no, two. No, but even if it wasn't legendary, I'm still not playing a deck with four. Well, in a metal worker deck, I would consider playing three or four. Uh, yeah, I would. I would peek out at three still, but but still, that's not the point. I want to compare this card though to Micasynth Lattice, which also costs six. And you might say, why would you do that? Those cards are completely different. Well, the simple truth is, is that one application for this card is to have one in the sideboard for the new Karn, the Great Creator, to tutor up and then try and lock your opponent out. At which point, there would be no reason not to get Mycosynth Lattice, basically. I love that this, like, Darksteel rare is, like, now <laughs> seeing a lot of play. <laughs> I don't know about a lot, but uh, seeing a lot of attention, that's, that's for sure. That's what I meant, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I think that there's no way that God Pharaoh's statue goes in any deck other than Control Workshops. Yes, We can I agree. agree on that. I yeah. agree. Yeah. And as such... There's no way that modern control workshops isn't going to be playing Karn the Great I Creator. Mean, I suppose it's possible that an aggro workshop could could have like one in the sideboard, like just as a mm. sideboard card, like along with like Worm Coil Engine and that kind of thing. Specifically so that they could like tutor for it with Karn, you know, grab it out of the board. It's certainly possible. Okay. That's fair. Any deck that well see now oh, darn. I don't know. I just think that Mycosynth Lattice is the superior card to have in that slot though. And and it is a one for one issue. I mean, because you're this, never going to board this in. I mean, this prevents your opponents from like ancient grudging, you know. So, so does Mycosynth land. Well, they can float in response. Okay, you're right. That's true. If they've got mana up, they can beat a Mycosynth lattice. You know, in situations where they couldn't beat this, that's true. Well, be that as it may, I, I still feel like if people are going to play a, a six mana artifact just to lock your opponent out, they're going to be doing it with the new Karn, and in that case, they're going to be playing Mycosynth lattice only. I, I just, I can't imagine there's also room for this. Yeah, I'm going to go zero on this one. Okay. Um, Jeez, this one's really close for me. <laughs> it is. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I just think that it's... it's All it takes is one person playing this on a sideboard to get to one. <laughs> you know? 
I'm serious. <laughs> well stated. In a top eight. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go one. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Somebody out there make Steve happy. <laughs> it's not about me being ha- happy. It's about me trying to be, get it right. I just, I just think it's the probability is too high. So, <laughs> well, I won't be that surprised in any case. I, I think this card is borderline vintage playable. If Metalworker was, was, becomes more of a thing, it definitely goes higher up on the list. If Control Workshops becomes more common, it definitely goes higher on the list. Yeah. At the, at the moment, I, I don't think so. I do think that the new Karn is a boon to, uh, Control Workshops. Yeah. And as such, there's an X factor. There could be, you know, conflating factors here that, that conspire to put this card up there. I guess I, I, not, I'm not a buyer on that just yet. And our last card of the set, Kevin, is Ugin the Ineffable. Ugin is six colorless mana. Legendary Planeswalker Ugin, starting loyalty of four. Colorless spells you cast cost two less to cast. Plus one, exile the top card of your library face down and look at it. Create a 2-2 colorless spirit creature token. When the token leaves the battlefield, put the exiled card into your hand. Minus three, destroy target permanent that's one or more color. So... we have uh, now we have a kind of a glut of six mana cards to talk about yeah (laughs) well i think one of the things that's interesting is there have been um so we've looked at cost and um enhancers or and then cost reducers um Mm -hmm. one of the cards that we reviewed a couple months ago or a little while back was jora's familiar um which is a flying 2-2 that has historic spells costing one less to cast which Mm -hmm. means that artifacts which are, are historic cost one less to cast um and as well as legendary spells. So Joris right. Familiar is interesting because it can make all the Karn cost less, despite it being a planeswalker. Um, yep. I think that I think that um, obviously the, the 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 paradox with this kind of effect is that this is probably the top of the curve, right? <laughs> right? And so like you have to hit the top of the curve to get the benefit of reaching low. I think it's part of the problem with Joris Familiar, which is not now obviously that's not quite the same problem with um. Foundry Inspector, because Foundry Inspector is just turn one and then allows you to empty your hand on turn two. Mm-hmm. Um, but this card has other effects that are relevant. Absolutely. Unlike many of the Planeswalkers in this set, the plus and the minus in this card, I think, are both highly relevant. Exactly. Not only... I mean, the the first ability, or I guess let's call it the second, of exiling, <laughs> um, you get you get, you get get to cr- a 2-2 creature immediately, right? And then yep. when that token leaves play, you get the exile card in your hand. So it's, it's kind of like a three for one. Exactly. But you don't get it all at once. No. There's a two for one and then there's layaway. <laughs> right. And unlike a lot of these other planeswalkers, you can bounce between the plus and the minus. So you can destroy a permanent, presumably a planeswalker almost immediately. And then you get to bounce up to the exiling and creating a defense again to protect itself. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, turn after this. I mean, it's basically like, you know, the um, Eldrazi Temple. Right. Right. So. Yeah, I think that this Karn has a lot of attractiveness, and it, it can play a lot of good roles. Unfortunately, the deck that's um, most likely to play it, Workshops, I think, is not making the best use of the minus ability. Right. Yeah. It doesn't do anything in the mirror, so really, this is just a token generator in the mirror, and it's more expensive than dozens of other token generators of that effect. And then in the matchup that that you need most help, which is outcome. This has a scant little effect. You're, you're rarely even going to have a target for the minus ability, and the tokens don't help you that much. That's true. So this is kind of cause could be a real beating for workshops against um, Xerox, similar to the role that Karin Scion played, right? 
yeah. making creatures and drawing cards. This just kind of does both at once. And with removal there if you need it for deck fading. So this is, I think, awesome for shops against Xerox and borderline useless in the other matchups. Not literally useless because, of course, you get some grizzly bears, but you're way overpaying for that. Is there a non-shop deck that needs help against Xerox that would also be interested in this effect? Um, Basically, what I'm saying is, do you want to play this in outcome? Right. Hard to know. I think this compares pretty unfavorably with both of the new Karns, even even though the new one's not that great for outcome. Just because the quality of cards that you get is Im- more immediate with Karn. Yeah. Yes, with Karn Scion, you get the worst of two cards, but you get the better of them next turn if you need it. Whereas, you know, the tokens are of very little value for outcome against Xerox, I guess. They're not nothing. It is. It does represent a win condition, but yeah, they're the easiest kind of thing to kill, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I assume that you're going to want to, like, go down, blow something off the board immediately if you can. And then start a gener- planeswalker, almost certainly. Yeah. yeah, and then start generating so, tokens. This is an answer to all the fancy new planeswalkers we're talking about, yep. right? It blows up Teferi, Narset, Sahili, yep. <laughs> Dovin, the only one it Ashiok. Does, it doesn't kill Nar- Narset. Um, it's permanent that's one or more colors. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be two colors, it just has to be colored, right. which is why it does nothing against artifacts for the most part, and pretty weak against Eldrazi. Yeah. This does kill Thalia. And also, good luck casting this. Also, as soon as you play. cast this, you can then cast any two mana spell for free, artifact or colorless. <laughs> so. That's true. This gives you infinite storm with double tops. Oh God! <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> <laughs> hey, that could happen. Yeah. Not the storm so much as um, uh, mentor. You can have unbounded mentor yeah. tokens. You get this double top and mentor. You get unbounded token and unbounded prowess. So I'm going to go zero, but I think this will. I think this will certainly see play. I don't think it'll appear in top eights, but people will yeah. mess with this this is just another in the long line of yes this is vintage playable doesn't quite have the right home right now and that does it for us and war of the spark this set is incredible it's worth noting if we haven't already that there were a number of cards that were recommended by all of you and for the interest of time we cleaved off a few of them uh most of them because we thought they were they were would have been interesting to talk about but the show is already going to run long by definition so thank you for all of your collective feedback on this set. I want to go back and give a review for those cards that we predicted play for. We predicted for Dreadhorde Arcanist. Steve, you're on 12, I'm on 8. Teferi Time Raveler. Steve's on 2, I'm on 4. Bolas's Citadel. Steve's on 2, I'm on 1. Karn the Great Creator. Steve's on 12, I'm on 8. Narset Parter of Veils. Steve's on 22, I'm on 20. He would not be outbid. <laughs> Sahili, Sub- Sublime Artificer, Steve's on one, I'm on two. Blast Zone, Steve's on five, I'm on three. Dovin, Hand of Control, Steve's on one, I'm on two. Ashiok, Dream Render, Steve has five, I have zero. And God Pharaoh's Statue, Steve has one, I'm on zero. So you, I think I out uh, predicted, I, I predicted more numbers on almost everything except for two, two of them? Uh, three of them. Three of them. You I have- outbid you on... Teferi, I outbid you on Sahili, and I outbid you on Dovin. Three of yeah. the three mana walkers. Interesting. Yeah. We shall Definitely. see. Very interesting. <laughs> It'll be a very fun report card on this set. So, with that, thank you for listening to episode 89 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other Magic players can find it. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. 
game. <laughs> <laughs>